Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey everybody. Today, Rado talks through episode 27 of his podcast, and today it's going to be all Gen Con all the time. This week, it's the 50th ever Gen Con in Indianapolis. Isn't Indianapolis? Indiana? I don't remember where it is. <laughs> but all I know is I'm not going, but I imagine some of you are, and you might be trying to decide what games you want to pick up, or demo, or what have you. And so, I'm going to spend the next XDY hours going through a list of, oh, where is that tally? 128 games pulled from BoardGameGeek's new Geek Preview tool, which is what I've been using this year to keep track of what's interesting at the show. The tool is completely new. It's in flux right now, but they're taking feedback on it. If you want to give it a try, there's a link for it in the show notes of this episode. And like I said, according to this tool, there are 558 games and game expansions at the show this year. Of those 558, I'm going to talk about 128, plus a couple of other ones that actually aren't on the list, which I'll get to in due time. So, of those 128 we're about to talk about today, oh my gosh, it's going to take forever, 20 of them are expansions, which means there's a whole lot of games there, and a few expansions as well. Of the games, not expansions, it looks like, according to this geek tool, that 44 of them are demoable and 63 are buyable. Okay, and that leaves one left over, which it hasn't been flagged of whether you can demo it or buy it. So, oy, this is... Uh, All right. Wish me luck, folks. I need to go get a drink of water to get myself prepared for this. What we're going to do is, first, I am going to run down on the games that you can buy. Because I figure that's what people want to hear the most. Uh, Doing a countdown all the way up to the top ten. The top ten, by the way, I will be doing as a separate standalone video on my YouTube channel as well. And then after we're done with all of those games you can buy, we'll then talk about all the expansions you can get, and then we'll end up with all the games and expansions that you can demo. And after all that's done, I don't think there's going to be any time for questions and answers, so we'll get back to those next month when Jen gets back, because I didn't mention, I'm all by myself. I am flying solo this month. Jen is in England working on glass for all the Kickstarter backers from this year. Thanks to everybody who continues to make Rotto Runs Through and Rotto Talks Through a Possibility. Jen's working on your stuff right now, those who were at the uh, higher glass levels. Anyway, I have dilly-dallied and blathered long enough. What am I talking about? I haven't even gotten started blathering. But hold on a second. We'll be right back with a countdown of all the must-buy games. (laughs) 
Hey, everybody. Okay, so what to buy, what to buy, what to buy. Well, first of all, I can't tell you what to buy. You've got to make that decision for yourself. But what I can do is list the games that I would be very interested in seeking out cash in hand, fat wallet in pocket with an eye towards picking up. And it's actually interesting. Several of the games I'm about to talk about, I already own. I was really surprised to see Eric Martin, the head news guy and the curator of these game convention lists, mention recently that he's including anything that's come out within the last few months as being Gen Con ready, that it's still part of their debut, even if they've been available for a while. And that's certainly the case for several of the titles I'm going to talk about. In fact, several of the titles I'm going to talk about, I've already done run-throughs for. Some of them I even own. But for the purposes of this list, I've treated all of them as if I don't own them, and just based on the research that is available to me as a consumer, these are the ones I would be very, very interested in picking up. Now, there are 51 titles I'm about to talk about that fit under that aegis. And then separate from that, I'll do a top 10 must-have would not leave the convention center without. But that will be coming in the next section of this podcast. So, let's start talking about the 51, right? Well, how should we order this? In the past, I have always just gone through and I've done the extra work to literally rank them. But this year I didn't do that because I'm playing around with this really cool new Board Game Geek tool. And it doesn't have a way built in for me to flag them or rank them independently. I can thumb them. I can mark them as must-have, interested, undecided, or not interested. I'm basically going to tell you the 51 games that are available to buy that I have marked as I am interested. That's as deep as I can break it down. So, rather than just tell you about them in alphabetical order, I'm going to use some of the sorting capabilities of this tool. I could sort them by publisher. Maybe that'd be useful. I could sort them by the location, where they are in the actual convention center, if, somebody, if, if you want to know what was next to each other in real life. I could sort them by price, low to high or high to low, or by game length, which is actually kind of cool. I could talk about the shortest ones and end with the longest ones, or vice versa. I could sort them by thumbs or hotness, which basically means if somebody saw a game and said, oh, I like that, I'll thumb it. But I think what's going to be more interesting, I'm going to sort by community stats. And then I have a subcategory. I can sort then by must-have, interested, or undecided. And I'm going to sort by must-have. So, this is not necessarily my breakdown, but this is everybody else who has looked at this list and has marked any of these games as must-have. I'm going to start with the fewest must-haves from the Board Game Geek community and end up with the most must-haves. And then after we're done with all that, because none of these are necessarily must-have for me, these are all interested for me, but I'm sorting them by other people's must-haves. And then later on when we get to the top ten, I'll actually have them broken down in in an actual proper countdown form. Does that make sense? Did I just talk way too much about this? Probably. Apologies. Did I say I wasn't going to um, waffle? I lied. Let's get going, though, with, oh, I'm sorry to say, the only game on this list that nobody has said must have, um, although 20 people have said they're interested and 25 people are undecided. Stats are fun. Anyway, it's called Keto which I have to admit I hadn't heard of before I saw it on this list. K-E-T-T-O-U. It is, um, let's see, 
It's from publisher Table Forged. It's an action dexterity real-time game. And Keto is apparently Japanese for the word duel. And this is a real-time dueling game. From the brief description here, it almost kind of sounds like Jab set in medieval Japan. Instead of you know in modern boxing arena, and I have to admit, Jen and I we have enjoyed Jab and other games like it. Like we really like Tessin as our current high water real time. Um, you know, play cards as fast as you can to duel it out. And so we've enjoyed every one of these we've played, surprisingly, because normally we don't like games where we attack each other. But if you make it a real-time contest of skills, suddenly we're interested. Ketu is, seems to be a new one. I don't know what it brings to the table. It says it's got dice rolling, which is implicitly interesting. Although then the description doesn't say anything about dice. Once again, publishers, you're not really doing a very good job selling me the game if you don't give me any idea what it's like. But anyway... I'm just intrigued because Jen and I have definitely enjoyed these kind of real-time sit-across-the-table-and-duel-each-other games before, where normally we don't like dueling at all. So, uh, that is Ketu, and then we move on to Dungeon Hustle, which has four people saying that they must have it, and a further 82 people saying they're interested. And I am one of those 82. Now, this is a dungeon crawl, a competitive dungeon crawl, and I don't know much about it either. Apparently, um, the the dungeon is made up of a whole bunch of colored tiles, and um, on my turn, if I play a red key, that means I can move from tile to tile to tile as long as I keep moving along a red path. So I could go to a red tile, to red tile, to red tile, then boom, a red sword, and then a red shield and a red treasure, boom. But then, as soon as I move off of red onto a different color, my movement is over. So it sounds like it's some interesting like little navigated jigsaw puzzle with colors kind of thing, which sounds kind of cool. But apparently there's also a semi-cooperative element to it as well, where players can help each other out even though they're competing with each other. I don't know. I'm intrigued. It's from WizKids. Honestly, that's one of the reasons I'm intrigued, because WizKids seems to be kind of uh, picking some good titles recently. I'm not super stoked about it myself. It would probably be relatively low on my own list, even um, and not surprisingly, it's low on Board Game Geek's list, with only four people saying must-have Dungeon Hustle. Then we've got Destination Neptune 2nd Edition, which uh, has five people must-having it. I would must-have this um, much, much higher. Well, actually, no, no, no. Again, that's not quite true. I mean, strictly speaking, I would must-have this because I already like Destination Neptune quite a bit. I know I like it. This is basically an entry to get the upgrade pack for people who already have Destination Neptune. Apparently, the rules have been tweaked and kind of gone over. Uh, Some pretty significant changes required a bunch of new components. Jen and I already like Destination Neptune. Definitely like the idea of the designer revisiting it and tweaking it and revamping it and making it even better, taking feedback from the public. That's cool. That's enticing to me. Now, I only mark this as interested. I would have done it as must-have. Only my top ten have been designated as must-have. So, I kind of... That was a slip of the tongue there when I said this is a must-have. This isn't interested, although it would be a must-have. It's just not top ten must-have. Anyway, though, five other people have said they must-have it, and a a further 37 say they are interested in Destination Neptune 2nd Edition. And I should say, for people who don't have Destination Neptune, you can pick up, of course, the base game plus this add-on pack I think, if I recall correctly, at a very, very steep discount. So that basically, if you're buying the game, you can get the add-on pack effectively for free. Uh, So anyway, 
Next up, we've got Valerian, the Alpha Missions, which is a tie-in from publisher, who is it, Cryptozoic, I think? Uh, no, Ultra Pro. Uh, it's a tie-in to a big summer blockbuster that came out a month ago or a few weeks ago that apparently kind of fizzled at the box office. That's kind of sad. Uh, say la vie, you know, you win some, you lose some from um, writer-director Luc Besson. I'm sure it's absolutely gorgeous. I'm still looking forward to seeing the movie when it eventually comes out on home video or home streaming. But I'm still interested in the game. It's a deck builder. It's competitive. It's set in this gorgeous, colorful science fiction universe. I don't know much about it other than one thing. It's from designer Ryan Miller, and this is why it's on my list. Because I, Jen and I really enjoyed Ryan Miller's Fantasy, which is spelled F-A-N-T-A-H-Z-E-E. Uh, very funky. Um, I did a run-through for that, if you haven't heard of it. That was a really neat engine-building dice game that we liked a lot. And so, based on the strength of that game, Ryan Miller is now a designer of interest for me. And so, hey, he's doing this um, science fiction deck builder. I'm interested. It's on the list. And it's on seven other people's lists as well. Or seven must-haves, and 105 people are interested. Then we move on to Paramedics Clear! Has an exclamation point at the end. So, this is a real-time competitive game where players are trying to be the most successful at running their um, 911 emergency response unit. Paramedics running out there trying to save lives as fast as possible. So apparently it's real-time and it's press your luck. That right there is already a very interesting and intriguing combination. I'm also interested just because I love the subject matter. I would much rather play a game where I save lives rather than take lives. So I'm all always up for encouraging this amongst board game publishers to do something other than just destroy and kill as their primary theme in the game. But probably the thing that intrigues me most about this is from publisher Smirk and Dagger, and they are known for making the most cutthroat games on the market. That's like their whole thing, is that they make really nasty players ripping each other apart cutthroat kind of games. Um, you stab each other with a dagger while you're smirking. That's where their name comes from, Smirk and Dagger. They make cutthroat caverns. Um, and yet, they're bringing out this game that is competitive, but isn't. By their own words, it's not strictly the backstabby game that we're known for. And I'm like, like, yes, please. This will be the first Smirk and Dagger game I've ever tried. And the reason I'm interested in it, this design must be something. I'm assuming it's something really, really special. If it got this publisher to completely abandon their entire reason for existence to make hardcore, in-your-face, backstabby games, to make this other thing, this just a real-time, competitive, press-your-luck game, it must be something really special for them to throw aside their credo. So that's why I'm interested in Paramedics Clear... Uh, and eight other people must have it, and 35 other people are interested. Uh, as you can tell by these low numbers, I think the majority of Board Game Geek haven't really discovered how to use this tool yet. Most of them are still using the traditional geek list, but this tool is so cool uh, with all the sorting and the stats you can do. But anyway, moving on, we have Outpost, ah, Outpost Siberia, which has 11 must-havers. We're working our way up, and 113 people that are interested. So, this looks really, really cool. It's from um, designers Daryl Andrews and Jonathan Gilmore. It's a Arctic horror game, so I guess kind of a survival horror thing kind of um, situation. I don't really know. The interesting thing to me is it's co-op, and it's a card game 
where there's a, a stack of cards that players are drawing from. But when you look at the back of the cards, there each card has two different uses on the other side. And when you draw a card, you either draw it um, top up or bottom up to determine what type of card it's going to be. And I'm really, really intrigued by that cool little gimmick. I'm not describing it very well. I saw Daryl doing a demo of it on Board Game Geek's news video feed, and it just looked really, really intriguing. So much so that I would want to seek it out, in spite of the fact that it's a horror game and all of that stuff, because Jen would be turned off by that. But I suspect she would really enjoy this very cool little, uh, what do they call it? They call it a dual-facing card system. It seems neat. It's cooperative, high-tension... Uh, they say basically, uh, let's see, I'm trying to remember, that they're trying to you know, get the entirety of, say, a Dead of Winter style game all shrunken down into just a little deck of cards. That's intriguing too. Uh-huh. So there's a lot of reasons I would be trying to uh, learn a little bit more about Outpost Siberia. Then we move on to Dicey Peaks. 12 people must have this. And 143 are interested. This is from designer Scott Alms, who is known for the Tiny Epic series. And I have really enjoyed a bunch of Scott's games. And so, this is another one. This is a push-your-luck game of trying to climb some mountain or other. Not a real one like K2 or Mount Anfers, but a mountain called uh, the Dicey Peaks of Yeti Mountain. Um, apparently, it's a really terrible, nasty place. And it's a modular board where every time you play, as you're climbing up this mountain, it's a tile-laying game that means you're going to get a unique mountain every single time. Um, but it was surprising to me. I have to admit, the subject matter is kind of a turnoff. I've got zero interest in mountain climbing as a theme. But, Jen, I really enjoyed K2. And so, considering the fact that I've really enjoyed a lot of Scott Alms' games. And, by the way, if you look at the pictures of on Board Game Geek, it looks really pretty as well. So... Never underestimate the power of a pretty-looking board. All that stuff combines makes me very, very interested in Dicey Peaks uh, from designer Scott Alms and publisher Calliope Games. I guess I should have been saying that as I went, huh? Anyway, let's move on to Dragon Island, um, which has 13 must-havers and 152 other people are interested. This is from R&R Games, and... Um, I have to admit, I know almost nothing about this game. Apparently, it's a tile lane game where we're building Dragon Island, which is a place that we can explore and tame dragons and get treasure and stuff like that. Maybe it's pretty by the numbers. I, I couldn't say. Here's why I'm interested. It's from designer Mike Fitzgerald. And Mike Fitzgerald has had huge success, has been a wildly popular card game designer. For years now, he's been making, he's been knocking it out of the park with really successful card game after card game after card game. I believe this is the first time he has ventured outside the realm of the card to make a tile lane game instead. That in and of itself right there draws me in. I am intrigued by the notion of seeing a designer spread his wings and try something completely new and different. That plus R&R games, they've got very good taste. I've been really impressed by a lot of the games they've put out. And um, so, that, those two things combined make me uh, interested, in, um, along with 152 other people, in Dragon Island. And 13 people are such diehard Mike Fitzgerald fans, they must get it sight unseen. Then we move on to Bonanza the Duel from designer Uwe Rosenberg and uh, published by Rio Grande Games. 
14 people must have this, and 101 people are interested. Is that interesting? I don't know. Should I keep saying this or not? I keep saying it because as I'm going through the list, that's the information I get immediately, and then I have to click a little button to expand to see the rest of the information. So I'm reading those while I'm expanding the rest of the info. Anyway, sorry. You don't need to know how the sausage is made. What's Bonanza the Duel? Well, Bonanza is a very... It's a modern classic card game. Uh, it was from designer Uwe Rosenberg long before he was known for his big box heavy euros like Agricola and Caverna and um, you know Gates of Lo Yang and all the rest of them. This is a, it's always been a small little card game that is famous because once you have your hand of cards in front of you, you can't rearrange them in your hand. You must play them kind of first in, first out. As you are, I guess, trying to do set collection or something like that to score points because you're a bean farmer. I don't really know. I've never played it because originally Bonanza requires three or more players. It always has in pretty much all its forms. There was a dice game that worked for only two. But main Bonanza has always required three. Now, Bonanza the Duel is a two-player game that hopes to capture all the multiplayer interaction of its uh, classic brethren, in a whole new box. I've never played Bonanza. This might be our one chance. And so, I'm very, very interested. I think I would have rated this quite a bit higher um, than, than um, the, the board game community is at the moment. But still, Bonanza the Duel, definitely interesting to me. Then we move on to Rick and Morty, Close Rick Counters of the Rick Kind, the deck-building game. From Cryptozoic and designer Matt Ahira. Uh, this is another deck builder from Cryptozoic using their Cerebus engine, which is kind of a, an Ascension-style deck builder where you have a river of cards and there's constantly new cards flowing in and out. And I have to admit, I've not in the past been the biggest fan of Cerebus-based deck builders from Cryptozoic. I mean, there, there's a, probably a dozen or so different IPs that have been apply, applied to this. DC superheroes and Lord of the Rings and all kinds of of characters have been applied. And so now Rick and Morty, one of my favorite TV shows of all time, is getting the uh, the Cerebus deck builder treatment as well. So I have to admit, I was kind of on the fence about this. Because like I said, uh, the main one I tried was the Lord of the Rings, the deck building game. And it was okay. Jen, I thought it was fine, but just not really great. Just okay. And so I was a bit nervous until I remembered the the previous game to this in the Cerebus deck building system was Attack on Titan, the deck builder, which turned out to be fantastic. Uh, it, Matt Hira, you know, the, the designer of pretty much all of these games, he really went outside the box with that. Uh, he turned it into a cooperative experience um, and, and added a lot of things to the core formula that made it something really special. And then I was reading the description here, and even though this is competitive, while Attack on Titan was cooperative, I'm thinking, I'm not sure, but from this description, I think some of the ideas from Attack on Titan might have made it into Closer Encounters of the Rick Kind, specifically the notion of traveling to locations, using the portal gun, of course, uh, for Rick and Morty fans. And um, whatever location you're at changes things up for you. The, lo- the traveling from location to location is what made Attack on Titan, the deck builder, so cool. And if that has been brought over here, color me very, very interested. This, um, you know, uh, like I said, this might be a continuing evolution of Matt Hayes, um, l- you know, getting everything he can out of the Cerebus formula. 
So it's on my list, definitely. 19 other people must have it. 111 are interested. Rick and Morty, close and close Rick counters of the Rick kind. All righty. Next up, we've got Delve, which is actually a game I've done a run-through for because when it was on Kickstarter, a uh, very, very cool little game, a melding of Carcassonne-style tiling with sword and sorcery high fantasy adventure. It was very, very clever. It's um, from Indie Board and Cards. Jen and I enjoyed it. It had maybe a little bit too much take that in there for us, but in spite of that, we really enjoyed it, particularly because it also brought in a lot of cool storytelling also, in kind of almost a uh, Tales of Arabian Nights kind of way. It had a lot of really interesting things all melded together into a game that was a lot of fun that Jen and I enjoyed in spite of its you know latent player aggression. Of course, Carcassonne can be a very aggressive game too, so anything that's kind of inspired by Carcassonne is not too surprising that there's going to be some player versus player stuff. But anyway... Delve was a very, very cool game. We really enjoyed it. It definitely would make my interested list if I hadn't heard of it. And uh, so, like I said, when I'm making this list, I'm trying to pretend I haven't already played these games. So it would definitely be of interest to me, as it is for 144 folks and 20 folks must have it. Then, let's move on to Okie Dokie. I just put the run-through for up for this yesterday. And this is a sweet, charming, cooperative card game where players are trying to help all the animals of the forest put on a great orchestral concert. It's pretty much an abstract card game where um, you cannot tell people what's in your hand of cards and you have to give them imperfect information. And based on that imperfect information that I have of your hand and you have of my hand, we all have to play cards in a correct sequence. So it requires um, you know, kind of reading between the lines communication and some intuitive leaps and some clever you know, uh, puzzling out what the best way to play this game is. You can watch my run through for more. It's sweet. It's cute. It's charming. I'll be honest, it's maybe a little bit too easy at the lower player counts, but this goes up to five players. Um, And um, I I suspect the more players you have, the more interesting it's going to get, because the tougher the puzzle is going to be. It's from Tasty Minstrel Games, and uh, designer Hisashi Hiyashi, who is really making a name for himself, and um, Okie Doke is a very worthy game. Uh, very, very interested. 78 people are interested in it, and 21 people must have it. And I do not think those 21 people will be disappointed when they get their hands on Okie Dokie. Then we move on to Klondike Rush. 21 people must have this, and 80 further people are interested. It's from Ryan Lockett, Red Raven Games. The um, Wunderkind designer, artist, publisher behind Above and Below, Near and Far, Islebound, uh, Eight Minute Empires. I mean, uh, Ryan is just amazing. And this is his latest big box game. And it is a really big stretch for him because... While it's, I think it's set in the same locket verse that his other games are set in, this is basically a stock market simulation under the guise of a mining simulation. Because there's different mining companies all trying to uh, you know, get the most ore out of this mountain while, I think, trying to stay ahead of, the, of a Yeti or something like that, which could, tr- could crash their stocks. And players are investing in the different mining companies while trying to expand their operations and stuff like that. Again, a very, very different game from Ryan. Although still, his same lovely, warm, evocative art that will pull you in. I can't wait to try it. 
And um, you know, based on his past pedigree, it's it's kind of a no brainer. It is a must seek out. I mean, the only reason I would have any hesitance for it is because I mean, I have to admit, stock market simulations have not always been Jensen my favorite thing. We've definitely enjoyed some of them, but and you know, and plus, like I said, this is completely you know um, undiscovered country for Ryan. But you know, like I said earlier with Mike Fitzgerald, I think that's awesome. I love it when designers spread their wings and grow and decide not to just keep repeating the same stuff as what they're known for. So that's Klondike Rush. And then moving on, we've got Vengeance. 22 people must have this. Another 107 people are interested in this. I don't have to expand this one because I know all about it. I did a run-through for it when it was on Kickstarter. This is a competitive dice-rolling game where players take on the role of a wronged hero who is looking for vengeance against those who have done them wrong. Uh, It's basically a recreation of the revenge genre of movies. Think Kill Bill or Payback or, you know, um, or uh, what was the Keanu Reeves one? Uh, you know, John Wick, that kind of thing where, you know, the hero or the anti-hero spends the whole movie tracking them down and taking them out one by one to exact his revenge. That's what you do in this game um, through a very clever dice puzzle system because you spend half your time do in, in a montage, what the game calls a montage, because everything it thinks about is couched in film terms, where you are scouting out locations, training, getting information about you know the gangs you're going up against. And then the second half of the game is actually rolling dice and um, manipulating dice based on all the skills you've learned and the equipment you have to be able to take out all these guys. Not by rolling to resolve, but instead you roll these action dice that could give you movement points or attack points or um, you know special actions and whatnot, and trying to figure out the best way to solve the puzzle of making it through the villain's lair with the dice you've got. Considering the fact that you only get to re-roll twice. Kind of Yahtzee-ish, but not really. It's really, really unique. I really enjoyed it a lot. It's a shame the subject matter is a huge turnoff for my wife, Jen, so I'll never get to play it with her. But I did get to play it with the designer, who, full disclosure, is a friend of mine. He's a Maltese guy. Uh, He brought it out. We played it. I had a blast with it. And uh, I think it's really, really something special. Also, it's a big game, a huge production, gorgeous minis. Um, you know, you may, it, from what I described, it may sound like just like a little, quick little knockoff. Oh, roll some dice, fight some guys. But it's actually a really big, elaborate thing with um, some interesting non-direct player interaction. Lots of stuff going on in Vengeance. 22 people will seek it out. 107 are thinking about it. Um, Vengeance. Then we move on to Deadline, which I'm really hoping to have a run-through done in time for Gen Con so people can see the run-through and decide if they want to get this. Uh, Spoiler alert, Jen and I really liked it. It's on my interested list. And we're just waiting for Paulo to get the... um um, the annotations noted up for goofs and whatnot, because there's always goofs. So many goofs. I'm such a goof. But anyway, Deadline is... Let's see, what did I say in the run-through? It's a cross between Sherlock Holmes consulting detective and the grizzled, which is to say it's a hard-boiled, film noir, um, you know, Sam Spade, Maltese Falcon detective um, story where you've got a bunch of different murder cases you're trying to solve. And these are, you know, fully plotted out with casts of characters and alibis and locations and all the kind of stuff you do in Sherlock Holmes where you work cooperatively to travel from place to place, interview people, and try to figure out who done it. And that's how you decide whether you win or lose if you crack the case. But all of that is combined with an interesting little 
cooperative card game where, well, like I mentioned earlier with Okie Dokie, it's one of those games where, like Hanabi or the Grizzled, I can't tell you what's in my hand. I can only give you vague information, and we have to work cooperatively playing cards to the same tableau to be able to achieve certain goals. And in this game, we have to, you know, that represents the act of actually doing the investigation. When we're trying to create whatever it was called, like a crime chain or or a clue chain or something like that, by playing the right cards and intuiting what everybody has in their hands, again, with imperfect information, if we succeed at that, we get to travel to location and get another clue that could help us solve the crime. It comes with 12... Um, cases to solve. Plus, if you try, if you go and try to play this at Gen Con, there's a case zero, a thirteenth case that you can play there, so you won't have it spoiled for you. That's what I actually showed in the run through. I don't spoil any of the real game, um, and uh, yeah. We really liked it a lot. It would definitely be on my games of interest list because that's just cool. Um, you know, hardboiled, um, you know, pulp noir, detective, um, thriller, mystery solving crossed with interesting card puzzle play. Deadline from publisher, who was it? Oh, from WizKids again. All righty. Then we are moving on to Witches of the Revolution. Now, this is really interesting. Uh, 27 people must have it. 177 people are very interested. Oh, did I say that about Deadline? 26 people had to have Deadline. 215 are interested. A big interest for Deadline. But anyway, Witches of the Revolution, big interest as well, because we're about halfway through this list now. Um, from Atlas Games, designer Craig Stockwell. I have to admit, I don't really know either of them. I'm mostly intrigued by this because, one, Jen and I really enjoy cooperative play. This is a cooperative deck builder. It's set in the time of the American Revolution, and players take the role of witches, who, turns out, history didn't record how witches, um, you know, covens of witches, were single-handedly responsible for America winning its independence. Um, of course, this is all alternate, um, you know, kind of uh, fictional history and all that. That didn't really happen. But I remember the publisher contacted me to do a run-through of it. And I read the rules at the time and said, hey, this sounds really, really cool. Uh, send it out when you've got it. I'd be, happy to, I'd be happy to go ahead and give it a try. And now I haven't heard from it since. He hasn't sent me one. I assume one's in the mail. But it, and it would have been nice. I would have played it and tried to have a run-through ready in time for Gen Con. But say la vie. It's going to be for sale at Gen Con. And all I can say is, I remember having read the rules, it sounded really cool. It had some very, very interesting tension-building mechanisms. I don't remember what they are. And you don't really get that strong a sense from the description here. But I do remember thinking, this sounds really cool. I definitely want to try Witches of the Revolution. Then we move on to The King's Will, um, which 28 people must have. 229 people are thinking about it. And it is from Blackfire Entertainment, um, Hans Peter Stroll. And uh, this is a, um, you know, a, a very... I don't say this in a bad way, but you know, kind of a very dry Euroy Euro, because more and more that's what um, Blackfire is is getting known for. Um, you know, they gave us Legrand Ha, they gave us Kraftwagen, they uh, you know, 
And so, you know, they've been having, uh, you know, several really good, strong games over the last few months. And see, I think this is first-time designer. Hans-Peter Stroll is a first-time designer. Um, from the look of it, it has a very, very interesting engine-building mechanism. kind of reminds me of Milestones a little bit, although not exactly the same. It's, it's not necessarily a rondelle. Um, but the, probably the most interesting thing about this is that players all have—there um, are— the, the way you score victory points in this game, the i.e. the king's will, what the king wants us to do as we're gathering resources to build buildings and, you know, and further his glory, we don't know exactly what the king wants from the get-go. All of his randomly generated objectives are face-down cards. And over the course of the game, we can start peeking at these cards, which will give us knowledge of what we need to do to actually make the king happy. And so if you see me peek at a card and then you pay attention to what I'm doing, you can figure out that, oh, maybe you need to do it as well. Or maybe I'm bluffing. Maybe you don't need to do it. And there's a bunch of different kings will. So you might know some of the things you have to do. I might know some of the things that we have to do. And we try to figure out what the other player knows. It's a very, very intriguing concept. I really like the idea of that. Um, you know, So the king's will would definitely be something I would want to seek out. Then we move on to unicorn... Uni, uh, uni- Cornus Knights. Um, 30 people have to have this. 266 people want to check it out. And, um, you know, and I, I guess multiply those numbers by 100 or something like that at the very least, because again, most people on Borging Week don't know about this tool yet. Next year, I'm sure it'll be a little bit more uh, effective, but still, um, we're, we're moving on up there. A lot of people want this. I w- want to check it out. I don't know. I know hardly anything about this game. It's from um, co-designer Senjay Kanai, who is the designer of Love Letter. He's a really sharp designer. And most of the time, he makes games that don't work well with two. This one does support two, though. It's a cooperative game where players... Well, there, there's a princess who is storming across the map trying to reclaim her kingdom, trying to storm the castle and take her kingdom back. And I guess she's kind of reckless. And we don't play the princess. We play the generals of the princess who are trying to manipulate her and make sure she does the right thing at the right time, takes the correct path, only gets in fights that she can win, and avoids the fights she can't win. I have to admit, I, that's my understanding of what the game is, and that is a very intriguing concept. That um, you know, we're working cooperatively to try to coerce this force that, uh, you know, strictly speaking, we work for, and trying to make sure they do the right thing. That sounds very cool. So I have been interested for quite a while in learning more about Unicorn Knights. And if I were at Gen Con, this would be my chance. Next up, we've got the Lost Expedition. Um, 35 people must have it. 227 people are interested. It's from Osprey Games, uh, designer Pierre Sylvester. And I have to admit, I have actually played this already. Uh, You can play this solo or cooperatively um, multiplayer or competitively multiplayer. Right before Jen left, I did get a chance to play this cooperatively, and we enjoyed this quite a bit. This is yet another um, one of these card games where... We have to play cards with imperfect knowledge of what the other player has. Man, saying this out loud, um, 2017 might be the year of the imperfect knowledge card game. I mean, a few years ago, Hanabi kind of set the world on fire. And um, and then, you know, Grizzled came out, and a lot of people were really excited about that. Seems like we're getting a bunch of these. I've listed now several of these games where the whole crux of it is, 
I know what I need to do. I know what we need to do. If I play this, will you do the right thing and follow it up? Or will you do something that completely destroys me? I don't know. Um, This one is basically retelling a famous South American expedition that was lost. Um, You know, all hands were lost. And you're going to try and rewrite history and make it through this thing alive. Um, By playing cards with the right icons um, so that... We'll play cards all in a sequence, and once all the cards have been played out, our expedition then has to travel uh, systematically from one card to the next to the next and do everything these cards say. Some cards let you skip other cards. Some cards give you resources that will let you survive the other cards that take resources away from you. And, again, we cannot tell each other exactly what we have in our hands, and we try to play smartly um, with our imperfect information. Jen, I very much enjoyed this. I only got to play it a couple times. I'm probably going to play it a couple times solo while she's gone. So I'm planning on doing a run-through for it. Unfortunately, I won't have the run-through done in time for Gen Con. Sorry, folks. I just can't do it all. I had to record this thing today. But anyway, Lost Expedition. Really, really cool game. Definitely makes my interested list if I hadn't played it. Um, Because remember, I'm pretending I haven't played it yet. I'm just being a regular customer or consumer. All righty. Had to take a water break there. Man, I'm only... Coin to the scroll bar, I'm pretty much exactly halfway through, and I think you can hear my voice is already starting to go. Whew, it's going to be a long day. Let's move on to Apocrypha, the adventure card game, um, from a whole bunch of designers, most notably Mike Selinker and his crack team of designers who have been working on this at Lone Shark Game for years now. I mean, this game has been in development for quite a while. It's a huge labor of love. Uh, 39 people must have it. 204 people are very, very interested in checking this out. I am one of those 204 people. It's interesting. Years ago now, I did a run-through of Pathfinder, the adventure card game. And um, Apocrypha was being worked on years ago. And um, the publisher of Pathfinder saw the system and thought, hey, this will work really great with our fantasy adventure Pathfinder universe. Could you make a Pathfinder version of it? And so Mike and his team did. And they ended up making a whole bunch of games while all the time working steadfastly towards getting Apocrypha. This, you know, well, it's it's their magnum opus. It's their masterpiece. A cooperative adventure card game with tons and tons of dice rolling. Um, you know, big, epic you know, uh, multi-session campaigns you have to play through, set in the modern world where there are shadowy forces at play trying to take over the world and only certain people know about it. I believe that's the setting. Um, Jen and I enjoyed Pathfinder in spite of its preponderance of role to resolve. Um, you know, just because the core game was so lovely and there, it had a lot of really cool stuff going on. So Apocrypha, strictly speaking, which again has been in development for, gosh... Half a decade now? Uh, At least? It must be the full culmination of all the work that all these people have done for so long. You know, again, this this labor of love, this passion project. I just got to try this. I got to try the final um, end result of all this. Um, You know, how good will it be? I don't know. But, you know, again, just based on the passion, based on the history, and based on the fact that we did enjoy Pathfinder, the adventure card game, Apocrypha adventure card game would definitely be something I would be seeking out. Then we move on. This is a silly one. Port Royal um, from publisher Steve Jackson Games, which is very strange. This is a reprint. I've already done a run-through 
gosh, I think a couple of years ago now for Port Royal, or maybe last year. And um, I've actually done run-throughs for its expansion and all that to turn it into an awesome co-op game. Port Royal is a very, very cool little Pirates in the Caribbean push-your-luck card game. You can watch my run-through for more. 41 people must have this. 145 people are interested. It's really rock solid. Here's the thing. Nothing has changed about the game other than it's being reprinted by Steve Jackson Games, who have picked up the license for it, and they've changed the art of the box cover, such that it looks nothing like the original game. I assume the actual game itself inside the box has Clemens Franz' wonderful, charming cartoony art. I can't imagine they redid everything. But anyway, Port Royal is very, very cool. I don't know if this is going to be compatible with the excellent you know, game-changing, game-defining expansion. Uh, but if it is, and you haven't gotten Port Royal, it would definitely be something I'd recommend. It would be something I would certainly be seeking out. It definitely makes my interested list, along with 41 other people who must have it, and 145 people who are definitely interested. Then, we've got One Deck Dungeon. Uh, the 1.5 edition, which I guess is why this is on the list, because One Deck Dungeon came out a few years ago, I think. And I have to admit, I've always been curious in trying it. It tries to capture, um, oh, what are they called? Uh, you know, the old classic net hack style. I forget the term for it. You know, these old style computer dungeon crawls. Oh, I shouldn't know. I can, all I can think of is shmups and muds, but that's not what they're called. But anyway, um, oh, who cares? It uh, replicates old-style um, ASCII-based um, computer adventure fantasy games. Apparently, it's very popular. It's had a couple of expansions. It's had a couple of Kickstarter runs. I guess this is just the latest iteration of it, I assume, with updated rules, because it says it's the 1.5 edition. I've wanted to try this for a long time, in spite of the fact that I'm worried I won't like it, because... It has a lot of role to resolve, which is probably my least favorite mechanism in all of gaming. But I know a lot of people love it. A lot of people told me I must try it, and that's why it's on my interest list. 201 other people are interested in it. 46 people must have it. One Deck Dungeon. Then, oh yeah, baby, Baron Park. Um, 48 people must have this. 220 people are interested in seeking it out with good reason. From Mayfair Games, Phil Walker Harding has produced an absolutely wonderful uh, competitive drafting tile-laying game. You can watch my run-through for more. Jen and I absolutely adore the gameplay here. We are less than excited about the subject matter. I kind of wish it had stuck with its original theme park setting instead of a bear park. I talked about this in the run-through. Don't need to relitigate it now. But the theme aside, the gameplay is phenomenal. Um, it is, uh, you know, it's the latest in kind of this run of Tetris-style pieces puzzling them together to, you know, fill in grids. You know, like uh, Cottage Garden and Patchwork before it. But of all of them, this is our favorite. We really, really enjoyed it. You can watch the run-through to find out more. Definitely well worth seeking out. A very interesting game, Baron Park. Then we've got another game I played, although I do not have the final version. So I'd be interested in seeking out Fugitive. Uh, 180 people also would want to... 100, yeah, 8 people want to seek it out. 51 people must have it with good reason. This is a brilliant little... 
Oh, what would you call it? It's a two-player only game where one player is basically Harrison Ford from The Fugitive and the other player is Tommy Lee Jones from The Fugitive trying to track Harrison Ford down. In fact, um, uh, you'll, if you play this game and at some point you don't say, I didn't kill my wife, I don't care, you're not playing it right. Um, it's a really clever Fast, fun, brilliant little game of deduction and hide-and-seek. Asymmetrical for two players only. I, I played a prototype. I've seen the art for the final version. It looks gorgeous. Uh, it came with extra stuff I didn't have so that the... Uh, the uh, the Fugitive Hunter can take notes and stuff like that, which uh, I mentioned in my run-through. You definitely need to be able to take notes. Sharp, sharp game. Super smart from designer Tim Fowers. Highly recommended. I mean, this should be way higher on the list. Fugitive. I think Fugitive would probably just barely miss making my top ten if I had sorted this all by mine instead of by what the uh, Board Game Geek Gestalt does. Fugitive, really, really sharp game. Then we're moving on. The crowd has put next Sword and Sorcery. 341 people interested and 51 people must have. We are really jumping up into higher numbers here, folks. And this is another one. I did a run-through for this, man, was it two years ago? Or was it last year? I think it was two years ago. And it's finally coming out. It's a big, epic, cooperative um, dungeon crawl with gorgeous minis, gorgeous production values, big, epic, sprawling campaign play, smart gameplay, a lot of really cool systems. You can go back and watch my original run-through. I don't think the core gameplay has changed. I think most of that run-through still holds up to see what I think what I thought at the time, what makes it special, what makes it stand out from all the other dungeon crawlers. Now, here's an unfortunate thing. I would still put this on my games of interest list if I hadn't already played it. But I'll be honest, Gloomhaven has pretty much killed all other dungeon crawls for me. And um, while you know, I would still have this on my list, I would still want to seek it out. I'd still consider getting it. I would know there's no way I could play it because if why would I play it when I could play Gloomhaven? Now, this is true for all big, sprawling, campaign-driven um, uh, you know, uh, dungeon crawls. But, you know, Gloomhaven doesn't have any dice, and uh, Sor- Sword and Sorcery has tons of custom-bespoke dice building, or dice rolling and dice chucking. So for a lot of people, it's going to be a dream come true. It's a gorgeous game. Uh, I'm sure the end result is going to be absolutely lovely, and it definitely deserves its place on this list. That's Sword and Sorcery from... Oh, I didn't expand it. Ares Games. Yeah, yeah. All righty. Let's move on to another very interesting game. 201 people are interested in this. 56 people must have it. What is it? Anachrony from Mind Clash Games. And, um, wow. I've done a run-through for this. This game is crazy. It's set in a post-apocalypse future where another apocalypse, an even worse apocalypse, is about to hit us that will wipe out all of mankind. Um, And how will we survive? Because future humanity has discovered time travel and has reached back in time to tell us what we need to do to ensure that all of humanity survives. So it's very much a chicken and egg, um, you know, time anomaly, time loop, Terminator. Um, how did Skynet ever exist if Skynet didn't send back the Terminator to create Skynet kind of thing? It's got a really, really cool theme and really cool worker placement gameplay systems. It's a huge sprawling beast of a game. Very complex. That's what Mind Clash is definitely making themselves known for at this point. 
Really sharp gameplay. Uh, about the only thing that would be sad, at Gen Con, they will have the regular edition available. Um, if you had backed this on Kickstarter, you could have gotten the special edition that had these absolutely stunning worker minis that you used for worker placement that were absolutely gorgeous. If you watch my run-through, you can see I had some prototypes of them. As far as I know, those minis are no longer available. They are not required for gameplay at all. The gameplay is still just as good without them. But I know if I got there, I'd be kind of sad to know that, you know, what's it, a FOMO, fear of missing out? It'd be very sad to have missed out on those. But hey, you know, if you don't back them, you, you get the retail version instead. But like I said, regardless of missing super awesome gigantic minis in a worker placement Euro-style game, this is a really, really sharp thing. Definitely deserves um, your interest. It certainly has mine. Anachrony. Then we have got... Mint Works, which I've also done a run through for. Uh, um, 165 people are interested. 56 people must have this. I would definitely want to pick it up myself. Why wouldn't you? It's going to cost 12 bucks, folks. 12 bucks. Um, and it's an entire little worker placement game that fits in an Altoid mint tin box. Um, I liked it when I did the run through for it. It was on Kickstarter. I would definitely seek it out. It's not the. Gr- it's not going to reinvent. Worker placement. Don't get me wrong. It's just an okay worker placement game. You know, it's it it's not going to dethrone, oh, uh, Manhattan Project Energy Empire or some you know equally amazing worker placement game. But what's amazing about this game is it's very good and you can easily fit it in your pocket. Even if you've got skinny jeans, you could fit it in your pocket and take it with you anywhere. If I had had a final. Um, production copy of this when i did my recent top 10 restaurant games this would have made it on the list this is the perfect game to take to a restaurant or a pub or a picnic table or anywhere and just bust out and perhaps a fun little worker placement game interestingly um this is available for sale they're also demoing um i think it's called mint delivery which is the sequel which is an equally small game that instead of worker placement it's pick up and deliver which I have to admit is less interesting to me because I don't like Pick Up and Deliver. I like Worker Placement. I don't like Pick Up and Deliver, so I like Mint Works. And if you like um, Pick Up and Deliver, though, you might want to pick up Mint Delivery as well or check it out. You can't buy it, but you can check it out. But anyway, a uh, very, very, very cool little game from 524 Labs and designer Justin uh, Blasky. Mint Works. Oh, folks, I need to take a break for a second. I need to, I think I need some ice cream or something. Yeah, 50 minutes I've been talking. I'm about two-thirds of the way through this list, and I still got to do the top ten. And then I've still got to do the um, expansions and all the demos as well. Oh, my gosh. Folks, I'm going to be right back. Okay, I didn't get ice cream. I might regret that. I just wanted to keep on going, so I just cleared my throat, hit the head, and now let's continue with Hot Shots. 59 people must have this. 221 people are going to be seeking out more information. I myself would definitely be interested because this is from um, Fireside Games, Justin DeWitt, the um, folks who brought us the excellent Castle Panic. You know, um, Pandemic gets all the credit for... You know, the modern, what would you call it, um, renaissance of cooperative gaming we've got. You know, the explosion of cooperative gaming. But Castle Panic came out right around the same time, and it was a hugely important and influential game as well. i got to give credit where credit's due. 
And so, no doubt, I am interested in what these folks have got for us next. Hot Shots, which is a game of firefighting or stopping wildfires spreading through forests. Which, of course, these days, with the ongoing climate change, um, is uh, becoming an ever more present part of day-to-day life. Uh, I was just uh, hearing the other day about what's going on in Canada right now. Normally, you hear about this in California. But anyway, sorry, don't need to go off into into those woods. Here's the deal. Modular board. Every time you play, you get a different force to try to save from the spreading wildfire. Um, everybody is a firefighter with different special abilities and all that. And what I say, I think more than anything else intrigues me is it's a push your luck game. And cooperative push your luck is not something you see a lot of. Push your luck is traditionally a mostly competitive game where you push your luck, I push my luck. Whoever does better at that and gets a little bit more lucky wins the game. I have to admit, I am much more intrigued by push your luck where everybody's working together. And if it busts on me and I fail, well, hey, hopefully you can pick up the slack and make up where where I exploded. So I'm really, really interested in hot shots. That's uh, why it's on the list. And a lot of other people are as well. Then we move on to Lisboa. 212 people interested. 61 people must have it. Uh, and, uh, yeah, this game is amazeballs. It's Vito Lasarda's latest big, gigantic, epic, super heavy, super rules-dense simulations. This one um, covering the history of Lisbon as it recovered from an epic, what was it? Three days or seven days of earthquake and fires and floods. And so players are working together to rebuild the city um, You know, with a cast of characters taken from real history. The game is very, very slavishly attentive to reproducing the history of this time. Because the designer himself is Portuguese. This is near and dear to his heart. And um, it's an absolutely brilliant game. Watch my run-through to find out more. Now, here's what interests me more than anything else. Jen and I enjoyed it, but it was not our favorite of his. I mean, after we loved Vinos, and we loved CO2, and we loved Gallers, and we loved Kanban, Vinos we liked, but we didn't love it. And at the time, I mentioned in my run-through that I really wished it had a little bit more of kind of like unique player setup so that it didn't, you know, so that players had a little bit more direction right from the get-go because it's a very wide-open sandboxy game, unlike all of his other games. And... Uh, when it was on Kickstarter, it hit a stretch goal to add that stuff. And so I haven't played with those things, but I am very interested in checking them out. Um, I mean, it, there's no choice about it. Lisbon, Lisboa is going to be a phenomenal game. Vito Lasarda, he is, there's just something crazy about his brain that, I mean, he makes these big, dense Euros that are as full of rules as the densest Ameritrash game. As, you know, he makes the Arkham Horrors horrors of the Euro gaming world. And, you know, for people who want a really dense economic simulation with a million levers you can pull and a million rules to remember, um, you know, this is his latest. I'm sure some people will say it is his greatest. I'm, I'm sure it's the one that's very, very personal to him because, again, it's, you know, it's, uh, I, I know it's near and dear to his heart, Lisboa. All right. Then we've got Caverna Cave versus Cave. 248 people interested. 62 people must have this game. And this is designer Uwe Rosenberg's latest uh, iteration on the I will take my big behemoth monster Euro 
game and shrink it down into a tiny two-player only experience. He did it with Agricola, he did it with Lahav, and now he's doing it with Caverna. Can't wait for the Luoyang one. Um, I guess you could, strictly speaking, say he did it with Odin as well. I guess that's kind of what patchwork is. Never really thought about that before. But anyway, Caverna K versus Cave is shrinking down the um, his, his super popular Caverna into a tiny, tight package. And it works great. I've done a run-through for it. And when it, in the end, I think it was a little bit too um, aggressive for me and Jen. There's just a little bit too much take that in there for our tastes. Um, but it's a brilliant, brilliant design. And I would definitely, again, just being you know Joe's six-pack consumer, I would totally be interested in seeking this out. I'm sure this is going to be a very, very popular game. I mean, I know it was because it actually... Again, I don't understand why this is on this list. It, it was on the Origins. It debuted at Origins. And now it's debuting a second time. I'm not going to question Eric Martin's wisdom. Um, uh, but suffice to say, it's a brilliant game. I'm sure people will be seeking out. I'm sure it's going to sell out for Mayfair. Um, that's Caverna Cave versus Cave. Then, next up, um, 384 people are interested. And 66 people must have Bunny Kingdom. Um, from designer Richard Garfield, the creator of Magic the Gathering and publisher Yellow. I have to admit, I'm really intrigued by this. I have to admit, most of Richard Garfield's designs haven't really done it for me. Uh, you know, he just focuses too much on player versus player stuff. And I'm not sure maybe this has too much player versus player stuff too. But in its heart, this is a card drafting game where you're drafting cards that most of them allow you to place your little bunnies out on um, coordinates on this kingdom map. And so, uh, and you know, your area, it's like an area control game. You're trying to make little bunny kingdoms by putting bunnies adjacent to each other to gobble up more and more land around all these pre-placed buildings and stuff like that. It looks gorgeous. I mean, yellow games, yellow games are always stunning. I'm sure it'll be a fun game to play or a smart, well-designed game because Richard Garfield is no dummy. And I get the impression this one isn't quite so in your face as his previous ones. So I'm really curious in trying this out. It sounds like a really smart design. Um, Bunny Kingdom. Then we have Renegade Games bringing us Scott Pilgrim's Precious Little Card Game. And now, first of all, I should say, I've never read any of the Scott Pilgrim comic books. I saw the movie and really, really enjoyed it. I wouldn't say I'm a super fan. Um, so I am more interested in this because it's from publisher Renegade Games. And lately, they can do no wrong. But on top of that, uh, this looks like a very, very cool little deck-building game set in the Scott Pilgrim universe where players um, you know, are... Well, apparently... It features innovative double-sided cards. Now, I don't know how it's innovative because Flip City did double-sided deck building. And I know there's at least one other game that did it, but we'll let that slide. What's interesting is the two-sided cards, as you're deck building and taking, you know, putting them in your deck with one side up or the other, the two sides are hard work and empathy, and the other side represents the, quote, unpredictable world of gratuitous video game violence, end quote. So that's how you deck, you, you deck build towards hard work and empathy or um, video game violence, which I'm sure... Well, actually, again, I saw the movie, so it's very true to the subject matter. But So uh, it sounds cute, it sounds fun, but mostly Renegade can do no wrong. So I suspect it's going to be absolutely awesome. Scott Pilgrim's precious little card game. 
All right. Uh, 211 people are interested in that one. 67 people must have it. Then we move on to The Fox in the Forest. Also from, you guessed it, Renegade Games. Uh, And this is interesting. This is a two-player only trick-taking game. And here's the thing. Trick-taking games are almost universally horrible two-player experiences. I've only seen a couple that work well. And a lot of people have said Fox in the Forest is one of them. A trick-taking game that works very, very well for two players. I'd really love to try this out. Um, you know, they, they haven't sent me a review copy. Say la vie. So I would definitely get over to the booth and check it out. 214 people are interested in it. 68 people must have it. It looks gorgeous. I've heard nothing but great things about it. And again, Renegade Studios, they don't play, y'all. They just make really rock-solid game after game after game. So I expect good things for the fox in the forest. After that, 83 people. I think this is the biggest jump we've had so far. From 68 to 83 people uh, must have, and 147 people are interested in, legendary Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And I will count myself among those interested as well. It's from Upper Deck, as are all the legendary games. And you know, I played the original legendary uh, Marvel game. A million years ago now. And I thought at the time, yeah, that's pretty cool. Didn't really get into it. It was a little long. I mean, I love Marvel superheroes. It was a good, solid system. But there was just a conflux of things that prevented me from you know, getting on board and collecting it. Which I don't mind because, man, um, there's just too much. But here's why. I, you know, and I haven't really pursued any of the other legendary games. Because while they all add new interesting things, they're still legendary. And I feel like I've played that. Uh, you know, which you know, they're cooperative deck builders um, with with the universe. I mean, you can go back and watch my older run through of. I mean, but heck, there are so many videos out for all the different legendary games. I'm sure everybody knows about it. So why have I ignored all legendary all the time? But suddenly, I'm interested in legendary Buffy the Vampire Slayer, especially considering the fact that um, gasp, shock, um, terrible admission to make here. I have never watched an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I saw the original movie. I always meant to try it. But I, actually, that's not true. I've watched the first couple episodes. I understand the first season of Buffy the Vampire Slayer is tough going. And you have to make it through that before it gets really, really good. And I could just never do it. I love Josh Whedon. Um, I've really enjoyed so much of his stuff. Firefly and you know the Avengers and you know his quirky sense of humor. And I know... I would love Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the TV show, if I could just make it through that first season that everybody says is so hard to make it through, but I just haven't been able to do it. But anyway, that's not why I'm interested in Legendary Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I am interested in it because of the designers, Travis Chance and Nick Little, the co-design team behind Action Phase Games and behind Heroes Wanted, which was a phenomenal game. A game I just loved a bit. I actually I got to play it for the first time in quite a while uh, not too long ago because uh, it's gotten its new expansion that just came out. It's sadly its last expansion. And um, you know, so why, you know, what's the deal? Here's the thing. I don't know what's happened. I hope it was amicable but Travis Chance and Lick N- Nick Little Lick Niddle Sorry, Nick. I'm sure I'm not the first person to make that reference. That was a total uh, slip of the tongue. But anyway, Travis and Nick, as a design duo, as I understand it, are no more. They have parted ways. Travis is going on to greener pastures. He started his own board game uh, publishing uh, startup, Colossal Games, with a K. I look forward to seeing what he comes up with. But as far as I know, this is going to be the last design we ever get from Travis and Nick. And those two guys working together... 
produce fantastic stuff. And so, whatever they got together is, whatever they have done to Legendary, I want to know it. I want to see it. I want to experience it. I mean, here's the thing. Heroes Wanted was a brilliant game, and I don't know if this is true, but I suspect it served as a really big inspiration for Gloomhaven, which is now one of my favorite games of all time. But, you know, I don't know if this is true or not, but I'm assuming Gloomhaven didn't exist without Heroes Wanted. Heroes Wanted is a brilliant design. Um, you know, and these guys... You know, Action Phase Games has produced just a ton of really good stuff. They are an incredible team. So, and Legendary was already a very good system. So whatever they did, I don't know what they did. I don't need to know what they did. I am definitely interested in this. Not interested enough to make it into my top ten, granted. Because, I mean, Legendary is a good system. It wasn't a great system. But still, I want to know. And more than anything else, I almost feel like I have to seek this out just because, you know... Again, it's the end of an era. It's the end of Chance Little. Um, I wish them both luck in all their future endeavors. I will follow both of them. Um, but they, like I said, they produce magic together. And as far as I know, this is the last magic they're going to produce. Legendary Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> Go figure. I could be wrong. I don't know any of this from firsthand knowledge. Heck, maybe they're still bestest buds. I'm sure they're still bestest buds. And they're still planning on collaborating on design. I don't know. I'm, 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 anyway, that's my thinking on Legendary, um, which, I mean, uh, again, huge jump. 83 people must have this. 147 people are interested. I imagine most people are just interested because, hey, it's Buffy, or hey, it's Legendary, or hey, it's Buffy Legendary. I had my other personal reasons for seeking it out. Next up, though, uh, we go to 84 people. Um, we're going back to a steady climb now. Must have custom heroes. Although, wow. Um, I think this is our biggest interested. 538 people, including myself, are interested in checking this out. Now, it's from AEG, designer John D. Clare, and it is not a sequel. It is a continuation of the card crafting system in Mystic Vale. Jen and I love Mystic Vale. We love card crafting. And I've loved both of the expansions that have come out for Mystic Veil. Vale. I'm a Mystic Veil vale devotee and will continue to get Mystic Veil-y type stuff. But John and AEG have shifted gears. And they are doing something completely different now. Um, Mystic Veil vale was a game where you use um, cool special sleeves and Mylar cards to basically literally build cards as you play them. Customize cards and build a deck out of them. Mystic Veil vale was a push-your-luck game. Very nice, sharp, kind of push-your-luck cross with deck building. Custom Heroes has the same build-your-own-cards, but it's a trick-taking game. So, this could have made my top ten, except for the fact that it's trick-taking. And so, I'm a little bit hesitant, because as I said earlier, trick-taking for two is almost always horrible. I'm just going to assume this is horrible as a two-player game. And, you, and the more players, like all trick-taking games, the better it's going to be. But still... I cannot resist the siren song of card crafting. So I would definitely be seeking this out. I would definitely be trying to find out firsthand how well this works as a two-player game. Because I'm all about that two-player, y'all. And so Custom Heroes definitely makes my list of interest. Then, ooh, okay. 87 people must have. 365 people are interested in this war of mine. I've already done a run-through for it. And in fact, I am planning. I recently got the full final version, which made some not insignificant changes to the rules. So I'm actually going to be doing an update. And actually, not too long ago, just 
was it last week, I, for the first time, got to play this not solo. When I did my run-through for it last year, I had only played it as a solo game because Jen just couldn't handle the subject matter. This is a recreation of This War of Mine, the video game, which basically puts players in the role of a civilian. Not a soldier, not a hero of the revolution, just a regular, everyday, working stiff civilian trying to survive in a modern war-torn city and dealing with all the horrors of war. And it was a very heavy, somber game. Oh, interesting, I should say. When I played it solo by myself, it was a heavy, somber game. When I played it with a couple of my friends here... It was a very, very different experience. And I'm going to be doing an update video pretty soon talking about everything, that, how it's changed with the final and what my experience was like playing with more players. But suffice to say, I still think it's a brilliant game. It is an important game. It is an experimental game. It does a lot of really interesting outside-of-the-box stuff. And it is an interesting game. It definitely deserves to be sought out. This is one of those games I think everybody should play once. You know, whether it's for you or not, everybody should experience it because I think in years to come, it will go down as a very important stepping stone in the evolution of board game design because of the stuff it does. If you want to know why, you can go watch my run through, hear my final thoughts. And like I said, I'll be doing an update. Unfortunately, I won't be doing the update in time for the show. Suffice to say, I think it's an amazing breakthrough accomplishment and it's on my games of interest list, this War of Mine. Next up, um, oh, the game that should have won the Kenner Spiel but didn't is Raiders of the North Sea. And interestingly, coming from Renegade Studios again. They have picked up the rights for North American. This I, I covered this when it was on Kickstarter a million years ago um, from Designer, a little independent shop. Uh, uh, was it Garp Hill Games? Designer Shem Phillips. A real one of those success stories that could only exist because of Kickstarter. Man, I love Kickstarter. Kickstarter is so amazing. It's done so much to improve and, and push forward the art of board game development and design. Anyway, and Raiders of the North Sea got nominated for the Kennerspiel. It's such a brilliant game, and it makes perfect sense to me that Renegade, one of the smartest new publishers in the industry, would pick this up for wider distribution. It's a worker placement game. You're a bunch of Vikings. You all share workers. It's really interesting, really sharp. Unfortunately, it has a little bit too much take that in it, but um, when the expansions come out, which I've also done run-throughs for, and I assume Renegade will bring out in time, uh, that really took care of the, um, the player aggression factor. Super sharp game. Absolutely gorgeous. Should have won the Counterspiel. It didn't, but hey, it won the Renegade Seal of Approval. Um award because they're bringing it to America at Gen Con. 94 people must have this. Um, and what is it? 377 people are interested with good reason. Raiders of the North Sea. Ooh, this one. Here's another one, folks, that just barely missed my top 10. Flick 'em up dead of winter from pretzel games. 95 people must have this, uh, 259. Wow. Actually, those are small numbers. I would have expected this to be much higher. Because Flick'em Up, which is a disc-flicking competitive game set in the Old West, was a very popular, very successful game. And now, they're taking the same formula of it and putting it in the dead of winter zombie post-apocalypse universe. And I know some people thought it was just like a cheap cash-in. Oh, man, I hate that kind of cynicism. It, I mean... 
I can only imagine how much fun it must have been to develop and design this game to meld two completely different styles of games and bring all their strengths together to make something completely new and different. Here's why I'm interested in it. I have to admit, I played Flick'em Up and thought it was kind of meh. I just was not a big fan, went too long, wasn't interesting, didn't do anything that Catacombs didn't do ten times better. I mean, no offense, Flick'em Up was fine, but having played Catacombs, I would never play Flick'em Up. Here's why Flick'em Up Dead of Winter just barely missed my top ten of Gen Con must-haves. Co-op. A cooperative disc-flicking game is something I have to have. I must own it. And they've come up with a very, very clever system that will allow me and you and other players to work cooperatively to fight the zombies by disc-flicking while having the zombies emulate. You don't need another player to flick the zombie disc. You have this zombie tower that makes them kind of tumble out of a tower and try to destroy us. It's brilliant! I am so in love with this game! Here's why it didn't make my top 10. I think the game's going to come with 10 or 15, 20, probably 15 or so different scenarios. And, you know, they tell like a big campaign story. Here's the problem. Only about half of them are co-op friendly. And the rest are all player versus player. Where player... And it's not one player is the zombies and the other players are humans like catacombs. It's like, oh, no, no. The, ca- the zombies are still controlled by this zombie tower. It's player against player. It's post-apocalypse where everybody breaks up into their own individual groups and tries to kill each other while also trying to fight the zombie horde. I know my wife will hate that thematically. Uh, why can't we all work together? We were working together for the first half of this game, and now for the second half we have to try and kill each other while also trying to fight zombies. This is so stupid, she would say, and she would reject it out of hand. It drives me nuts. It breaks my heart, folks. Um, Pretzel Games, please retroactively make all of the... Um, uh, or, or at least make more cooperative missions. I don't think they understand just how big a deal this is. I don't... I mean, the discipline game where I can work with Jen to... F- oh my gosh, this is so amazing. It drives me nuts. This would have been my... This could have been maybe my number one or my number two if all of the missions, instead of half of them, were cooperative. But only half of them are. And so that makes me worry in the back of my mind that, oh, it's just the introduction. It's just the tutorial. And when you get to the real game, they turn cooperative off. So I'm worried. Um, but I'm still excited, and I love what this game... You know, that, that zombie tower, I've seen it in action. It looks so smart. I can't wait to give it a try. Flick them up dead of winter. But now, let's move on to some more flicking with Flip Ships from, you guessed it, folks, Renegade Games. This is the year of Renegade. Let it be said, they have been up-and-comers now for a couple of years, and they are exploding with game must-have after must-have after must-have game. Or at the very least, very interested after very interested after very interested. Um, 98 people must have this. 396 people are interested in this dexterity cooperative game. Yay! Flicking stuff cooperatively. Did you hear that, Pretzel? Uh, but you're not flicking discs, you're flicking chits. And it's kind of like a dexterity board game version of Space Invaders, because there's like a whole big bunch of enemy ships that are inexorably moving closer and closer to the player's fortress. And players from the fortress are flicking discs that represent them shooting lasers, trying to take out the Space Invaders. It looks really clever, really sharp. It has a lot of neat special powers and stuff like that. Seems really... I mean... It's a Renegade game. It's going to be great. Um, I'm sure of it. So, next up, 
oh my gosh, folks, this is ridiculous. Like I said, I just sorted this by the must-haves. We have another game from Renegade, Sentient. 104 people must have this. 460 people are interested. I've already played it. I've already done a run-through for it. It's a must-have game. This one just barely misses my top 10. Just misses it. But it is a beautiful game of of a future utopia robot programming simulation puzzle game. Watch my run-through to find out more, because my throat's going. I can't spend too much time. It's wonderful. It's sharp. Just missed my top 10. Sentient. Then we move on to Tiny Epic Quest. 105 people must have it. 237 are very, very interested. Um, I've done a run-through for it. You can watch my run-through to find out more. This is basically, could be called Tiny Epic Legend of Zelda. Uh, It should be. Its art is very evocative of that. Uh, It's smart, clever gameplay with interesting push-your-luck mechanisms and some of the coolest components you're ever going to see in a board game. Watch my run-through to find out more. Tiny Epic Quest. And then after that, we've got Century Gollum Edition, which is interesting because if we go up, I'm going to skip ahead, one, two, three, and say... At um, 107 people must have Century Golem Edition, and 139 people must have Century Spice Road. So there's the Golem Road and the Spice Road. These are both games that are interesting to me. I'll be honest, they'd probably be a bit lower on my list. Obviously, I'm out of sync with everybody else who really wants these. I don't know. Everybody talks about how these are Splendor Killers. And Jen and I just didn't dig Splendor. So I worry that we won't dig this because these are effectively light gateway, family-friendly, abstract cube pushers where you are using cubes to get different cubes to get points. There's nothing wrong with that. I've got a whole wall full of games that do that. But Jen and I generally like to have a lot of theme woven in that makes it interesting to us. We didn't like Splendor because it was a pure abstract. There was no theme to it whatsoever. I worry the same thing is true for the Century games. And, you know, you could argue that must be the case because, hey, two versions of it will be available. The Spice Road edition, which is, you know, set on the Spice Road, is the cubes represent spices that we're trying to convert into victory points. Or you've got the Fantasy Gollum edition, which is the exact same game just set in a fantasy world. Um... So I worry, that's why it doesn't, I mean, I'm interested, I've heard nothing but good things, but you know, we'd heard nothing of good things about Splendor, and we just didn't dig it. So I don't know if the Century games are going to be great or not. I'm interested, I would seek them out, I would definitely try them if I were there. Next up, Professor Evil and the Citadel of Time, 221 people must have it, 650, I think this is the biggest um, interest yet, 650 people are interested in this, folks. And it's from FunForge. It's a cooperative game where players are running around inside the citadel of Professor Evil, his citadel of time, trying to recover stolen artifacts uh, while the professor himself runs around and locks doors and tries to catch us and makes things difficult for us. Um, I have to admit, I've gone through some peaks and valleys with this. And when I first heard about it, huge peaked interest because the designers, Matthew Dunson and Brett Gilbert, the team that brought us Elysium, which is in my top 20 games of all time. That game is amazing. Matt and Brett, please give us the expansion for Elysium. You know what I'm talking about. Make it happen, guys. Anyway, putting that aside, sorry. Um, Anyway, 
Maybe I should cut that part out. Um, uh, so I heard they were working on a cooperative game with a really cool, funky theme. Sounded great. Must have. Then I saw an early example of the gameplay, and I'm like, oh, really? This looks like Pandemic for Kids. Uh, or not, not kids, but pandemic for families. It looks too like it looks kind of like it had the same weight as Forbidden Island, which is fine. Forbidden Island is nice, but it was just too lightweight for us. And it looked like I, I was worried when I saw it in action, or you know, I saw an early description of how the gameplay works. That Jen would hate it. That it would just kind of be because it's kind of pick up and delivery as you just run around and pick things up and try to grab them. And the professor is just locking doors and right. Oh, now I got to go unlock that door again. It looked like it would be kind of a bit of a grind, and I was just worried. Man, I don't worry. There's not enough there. But then, just this week, as I was digging up more information, I figured, okay, let's go look and see if there are better videos for this now, or there's more information. And yes, there is. And suddenly I peaked again. I'm very interested because there was one thing I didn't know about from the last time. Yes, the core gameplay is super simple. Just move around, try to unlock doors and go through doors and try to stay ahead of the professor. That is really simple. That's what was kind of a... I'm a bit nervous. It's too simple. But here's what makes it interesting. At the beginning of your turn, you have a deck of cards that gives you all kinds of special powers. You draw two and pick one, and that will be the special power you have for that turn. That sounds super cool. I really love that core mechanism. And I think... It sounds really, really simple, but I suspect it's going to make this game a lot of fun. And suddenly, I am back to peak interest for Professor Evil and the Citadel of Time. And I'm not alone. We're high on this list. 650 people. That is the highest interest count to date. Crazy. But anyway, next up, we've got Magic Maze. Did this one win the spiel? I don't think it did. It was nominated, but it didn't win, did it? Um, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but that's okay. Yeah, King Domino won. But this is a really cool game anyway. Jen and I very much enjoyed it. Um, you can watch my run through to see more. We ultimately didn't keep it mostly because while we enjoyed it, it was too stressful. Uh, it kind of crossed the line for Jen. She, you know, and, and if we're going to play a real time game, we'd rather play Fuse or whatnot. It's a real time, um, um, you know, dungeon exploring. Or if we're going to play a real-time dungeon exploring game, we'll play Escape. But this one's really, really cool. It's also better with higher player counts. This is a game that it's almost a party game where Escape can never really be a party game, where this one is. It's super sharp. You can watch my run through to find out more. Also, there's going to be, I think, um, well, I'll talk about that later when we get to the expansions. There, the expansion for it is going to be playable for the first time as well. Um, but I'll talk about that later. Once my throat recovers. But anyway, Magic Maze. Getting on close, folks. I can see the scroll bars almost to the top. And um, next up is Century Spice Road, but I talked about that a little bit before. So then let's move on to the king that won the Spiel des Jahres this year, King Domino. This game has been available forever. Surely it already debuted in a... Oh, whatever. I will not question Eric. I already said I'm not going to question Eric. Eric says it's debuting at Gen Con, so it's debuting at Gen Con Watch my run through. It's a sweet, charming little game. Um, you know, especially if you get a couple copies of it, so you can play kind of the epic version of it. If you're playing with more players, you can play the epic version of it with two. But you can watch my run through to see more. It's neat, sharp, deserving title for the Spiel des Jahres, King Domino. And then, oh, and what was it? 139 people must have it. 430 are interested. But, folks, um, almost to the end now. Things are getting exciting. Hey, what have we not heard for a while? 
the name Renegade Games. I think it's time for another Renegade Games title, um, Ex Libris. 163 people must have this. Wow, that's another huge... That's almost a jump of 30 people. Big, big jump. 592 people are interested. There is a lot of excitement for Ex Libris from Renegade Game Studios, folks. Um, I'm interested as well. I know hardly anything about this game, I have to admit. Um, I don't know. Renegade, sometimes they send me review copies, sometimes they don't. I never really know. I mean, I'll run through all their games. Renegade, if you're listening to this, I will run through all your games! I, but they only send me about half of them. Whatever. So I have not played this one. I don't know anything about it. I haven't looked. There's a lot of excitement for it. It's a game where you're building a library, so all the cards you're drafting for, I think you're drafting for, look like little portions of a bookshelf, and you're trying to build the best bookshelf. Apparently, it's great. It must be, because so many people are excited about it. I haven't looked at it very much. I haven't needed to, because it's from Renegade, and Renegade has entered that realm, uh, or you know that um, pedigree of, yeah, it's going to be great, or else they wouldn't have published it. I just know it. Okay, let's move on to the next one. 198. Wow, we're getting big jumps from 163 to 198. People must have Sagrada. Uh, and 567 are interested. This is a great, great dice-drafting, puzzly little game. Absolutely drop-dead gorgeous. I did a run-through for it when it was on Kickstarter. You can go check that out. Um, yeah. This is very deserving being this high on the list. It's super sharp, super fun. One of the best gateway games to come out in years. If I ever get around to doing an updated gateway games, Sagrada definitely goes on that list. Particularly because it's a gateway game that you can enjoy as a gamer or you can enjoy as a total newbie novice. That's a rarity. Sagrada is brilliant, yo. But let's move on. Even higher. Another... Well, okay, no, this is not a big jump. 208 people must have Whistle Stop. Although, oh my gosh, the biggest interest yet, 707 people interested in this. There is going to be... I bet you this game's going to sell out. Looking at these numbers compared to where we started out, there is a lot of excitement for Whistle Stop. I have to admit, I don't know much about it. It's from Bezier Games. So I'm confident it's going to be a good design. It's a pick-up-and-deliver game. So I'm a bit hesitant myself. Jen, I tend not to enjoy that. Interestingly, I'm actually looking at a copy of it right now. It showed up in the mail the other day, and I'm so sorry, Ted Allspock of Bezier Games. You needed to get it to me like two weeks ago when Jen was still here so I could play it. It's sitting there on the table mocking me because there's no one here to play it with. So sad. When Jen gets back in September, I will play it. I will give you a run-through. All I can say right now is, folks, the excitement for this is through the roof. Absolutely insane. I think this has more thumbs than anything else. If I had sorted by hotness, this is the number one in hotness um, on, on my list of interest titles. But... Uh, yeah, it's pick up a deliver tile laying game set in you know the American expansion, conquering of the West by laying rail. Should be pretty cool. Uh, a lot of enthusiasm for Whistle Stop out there, and only two more folks. Now I'll be honest, this is super duper high. Two hundred and twenty people must have it. Another big jump. Five hundred and eighty six people are interested in First Martians Adventures on the Red Planet. And when I first heard about this, I was super stoked for it as well. Because this is effectively the spiritual successor to Robinson Crusoe. 
which I did a run-through four years ago. I think it's my most-watched video of all time, the run-through I did for Robinson Crusoe back when I used to film with my iPhone. Oh, they're so embarrassing to look at now. Oh, what was I doing? Why didn't I get a decent camera? Anyway, Robinson Crusoe is a super well-loved cooperative game. Uh, super challenging, um, oppressively tense survival on a deserted island, a desert island. Now you have super tense, um, you know, oppressively challenging tale of survival on the red planet instead. Uses the same kind of worker placement, uses a lot of the same overall structure, but they've really tweaked the formula a lot. They've introduced campaign play. They've introduced an app that can drive uh, the the, uh, gameplay. I'm not sure if the app is optional or not. Of course I would use it because apps and board games, the melding of digital and analog is a beautiful, beautiful thing. So there's a lot here I'm excited about, but it's weird. Um, You know, people who pre-ordered it have gotten it, and so far it's been getting mixed reviews. And a lot of people are complaining about the rulebook. Me, personally, I'd be willing to bet I would have no problem with the rulebook because I've never had a problem with any of Portal Games' rulebooks. The Preda Porter, the original Robinson Crusoe, before it got redone, they've all been fine to me. But I'm not a good judge of rulebook character when it boils right down to it. I read over 500 rulebooks a year, and that's not an exaggeration. Literally, over 500 rulebooks every year I read because of Rado runs through. So I've gotten pretty good at being able to parse rules. You may not know it from my run throughs, but when I, when Jen and I actually play the game and I've got time to actually look things up. Yeah. Anyway, I'm not worried about the rules. A lot of people complained about it. I'm just worried about that while, of course, there's a lot of tweaks and a lot of changes to the core formula and additions and stuff like that, I'm worried the beating heart of this game is still a little bit too close to Robinson Crusoe. Because while Jen and I admired that game, Jen didn't like the non-stop, everything is going wrong, everything is um, you know, very, very challenging, you know, the game never lets up pressure cooker style of game that Robinson Crusoe was. It seems that this is the same. In fact, I know, if anything, it's going to be worse because while in Robinson Crusoe, you were struggling all the time to create and make things that would make your life easier and you fail a lot and that's where a lot of the pressure comes from, in this game, you already start out with all your stuff made. It's just that it's constantly breaking down. All your technology, it constantly needs to be repaired. And I know that would drive Jen nuts. I would just thematically, it would not sit well with her. But what's the bigger issue is it's still a dice game, and those dice killed it for me. It's what um, there was too much role to resolve in that game in Robinson Crusoe, and it's still there. It's still the same basic system, and so I have to admit, even though this is near the top of board game geeks' excitement level, for me it would be near the bottom. I'd still want to try it, but at this point, I'm almost positive we won't like it for the same reasons we didn't love. Robinson Crusoe. But I'm still interested because I still love... I mean, I love app integration and all that stuff. I still want to see what they've done firsthand. So, that's almost, folks. There's only one more, according to Board Game Geek, on this, on my list of 51 titles that I'm interested in. Of course, like I said, there's, what, 558 titles in total. Um, I have very peculiar tastes. But anyway, the number one, 244 people have to have this. Another huge jump. And... A whopping 882. That blows away anything else that has come before. People are interested in photosynthesis. And I don't know. I'll be honest, this would be fairly low on my list as well. I want to try it, 
but I'm not super enthusiastic about it. The publisher, Blue Orange Games, they actually contacted me a while ago and offered to send me a copy. And at the time, after reading the rules, I had to say, no, I don't know. I don't think we're going to like it. I don't think it's going to be for us because it's an area control game. It's a very interesting area control game. It is a game of growing trees. And it's a beautiful game where you have these little um, cardboard cutout trees that get put on the board. And the board is round and circular because orbiting around the board is the sun. And where the sunlight falls is a huge element of the game. And when I say it's area control, the area we're trying to control is sunlight. I want to, if I can... Put trees, tall trees, in front of your short trees so that my tall trees will gobble up all the sunlight and prevent you from getting any sun. That is a cool, super brilliant idea of a game, and I love it. And if you look at pictures of it, you'll just see, oh my god, this game looks so gorgeous, I want to play it. It just looks like a toy, while still being a really cool, fun, engaging, inviting um, you know, family-friendly gateway game. But I don't know. I'm just worried that the game would be a little bit too much about, especially in two-player. If you ever wonder, why does Rado think everything's so too cutthroat when it's really not that bad, go to faq.rado.com. I talk about this at length, especially why two-player makes games more cutthroat than they are at higher player counts. But anyway, so I worry it's too cutthroat. But man, I love the idea of it. So I can't deny I am still interested. Even though I said no when they offered to send me a review copy, because I was pretty confident Jen and I wouldn't enjoy it, doesn't mean I'm not interested. Doesn't mean I wouldn't try it. And while it's near the top of Board Game Geek's list, it's near the bottom of mine, because I'm pretty sure I won't like it. But still, I want to feel it and touch it and try it. That is photosynthesis. Oh my gosh, folks, that was absolutely insane in the membrane. But I'm not done yet. Um, Now, if you hold on, we will get to my must-haves. I just went through 51 games I had classified as interested. Now I'm going to get to the must-haves. And uh, hold on, we'll be right back. everybody. Welcome back. Alrighty, so are you ready for the top, the creme de la creme, the must-haves, the games that I would knock anybody out of the way to ensure I did not leave Indiana without in my luggage? Well, then let's get to it. Starting with number 10, which is going to be kind of a little bit of a cheat, I think, because it's two. It's Notre Dame, 10th Anniversary Edition, and... Year of the Dragon, 10th Anniversary Edition. Two for the price of one! I have to admit, I feel kind of silly even putting this on the list when it boils right down to it, because, you know, these games have been printed years and years and years ago, and I guess they've both been out of print for a while. I don't know. Have they been hard to find? I'm not sure. I've had my copies forever. The interesting thing about the new 10th Anniversary Editions are, well, they don't change anything about the game. Uh, They don't do any kind of upgraded components or anything like that. Um, What they do, though, is they take the expansion content that had previously only been available as part of the Aaliyah treasure chest, so they were kind of hard to get. They were kind of 
scattershot all over the place, they take the expansion stuff and put them in the boxes. And for Notre Dame, that is hugely important because Notre Dame needed that extra citizens expansion to really give it longevity. Uh, Year of the Dragon, it could take or leave the expansion. They're nice, but they were an absolutely must-have. But anyway, now all that stuff is available. And in fact, I think they're in the Notre Dame um, 10th anniversary edition, there's also a little mini expansion for Castles of Burgundy. It was in one of them. It was either in the Notre Dame one or the Year of the Dragon. Long story short, folks, these are two of the best Steffenfeld games ever. Uh, um, absolutely amazing, phenomenal games. I've done run-throughs for both of them. Uh, Notre Dame is a card drafting game from well before card drafting was cool, thanks to Seven Wonders, where players are um, you know, helping the people of Paris build the Cathedral of Notre Dame, fight plague, and ride all around town in a cool little carriage getting bonus points. It's a blast, Jen. I absolutely love it. Uh, Notre Dame was actually our introduction to Feld, actually. And um, Year of the Dragon is arguably Feld's toughest, meanest, nastiest game ever. Not nasty in terms of player versus player. Players are you know, largely don't really interact with each other very much. Actually, that's not entirely true. There's a very, very cool action uh, tile drafting mechanism that works beautifully in two players. And in fact, I'm always surprised that more developers, more designers, don't copy in the Year of the Dragon because they have a brilliant scaling system. I've suggested it to so many um, designers over the years because it works so well. But anyway, Year of the Dragon is mean because the game is unrelenting. It will beat you into a pulp. It just hit... It's, it's, the Year of the Dragon is the worst year ever. Uh, 12 rounds or 12 months of cruel, back-breaking events that will just crush you. But you know what they all are. And you could prepare for them right from the very first turn for the game. So if if you play smart, you'll come out um, you know, whistling Dixie, or you'll come out just completely crushed into a ball. These are both phenomenal games. I combine them into one, because again, I mean, it seems kind of weird to put these really older titles, but hey, um, you know, they're they are on the uh, geek list preview on Board Game Geek, so this is their debut, and so I, I I have to give them props. These are two of my favorite games of all time, especially Notre Dame. Year of the Dragon, I like. Jen loves it. It crushes me a little bit more than her, though. But Notre Dame, we both just absolutely adore. Two phenomenal games sharing the number 10 spot, Notre Dame and Year of the Dragon 10th Anniversary Edition. Now, let's move on to number 9, Spirit Island. I did a run-through for this. Actually, I was going to say it when it was on Kickstarter, but I don't think so. I think it was a weird thing. The publisher actually sent me a prototype after the Kickstarter was over. And I just did the run-through just for the heck of it. Um, and it's now like a year later, and finally the game is available. And oh my god, what a game. This is an absolutely amazing cooperative game where players take on the role of the spirit of an island that is in the process of being colonized. You could kind of almost think of it as the reverse of Settlers of Catan. We're not the settlers. We're Catan fighting back against the settlers. So we could be the spirit of water or earth or air or fire. And that means we have these incredible powers that we can bring to bear to just scare the bejesus out of all these little colonists um, you know, who are here ravaging our, 
our island and you know robbing it of all its resources. It's funny. The game calls it ravaging, but from the settler's perspective, they're just trying to farm the land. They're not trying to ravage anything. But for us, yeah, you're ravaging us. We will destroy you. We will chase you off the island. And it's just an absolutely brilliant game. It's it's basically cooperative area control. I don't think there's another game on the market that does that. It's got really amazing, cool special powers, very neat leveling up system, really nice components. The uh, version I had, the prototype didn't really look that nice, but the final version has really cool little pieces for the settlers and their buildings that they build and all that stuff. It's really, really cool. Tons of replayability, a lot of different scenarios. Um, Absolutely amazing. My number nine, Spirit Island. Then we move on to another combination. I'm going to cheat again, folks. For number eight, I am mentioning the Exit the Game series, the Unlock series, and the Deckscape series. All three of these are wonderful escape room in your home style adventures that you can have. You get any one of these games. And in fact, when I say I'm actually talking about three systems, I'm actually talking at uh, Gen Con, there will be eight different games you could buy. Three games in the Exit series, three games in the Unlock series, and two games in the Deckscape series. And honestly, I'd suggest getting all of them. I've actually done run-throughs for each one of the series, and Jen and I, we have just loved them all to death. They all do escape rooms in different ways. They all have different strengths and weaknesses, to be fair. Uh, Unlock uses a digital app, so we can do a lot of really cool stuff like multimedia. Exit is the one that's a one-time use um, because it actually has you, um, you know, tearing up cards and snipping them to make components that you can use to solve puzzles. And Deckscape is super portable. The whole thing just fits in a pocket and um, has a very, very... It's Actually, of all of them, I think the Deckscape system is my favorite. Even though it's the simplest, it doesn't have a, a, a lot of the neat gimmicks that the other ones have, but they're all great. You can watch my run-throughs to see why I like them and how I contrast and compare them. But honestly, any one of these individual games you know, costs a fraction of a regular board game. Buy them all. Bring them all home. Play them with your family. Play them with your friends. The Unlock and Deckscape, after you finish them, you can give them away as gifts. The Exits, once you're done with them, they're done forever. Um, But... They're absolutely phenomenal. Jen and I have enjoyed them so much. So I've just, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to consider these all one big game that just have eight different modules that you have to buy from different booths when you're at Gen Con. So that's number eight Escape Rooms in a Box, Exit, Unlock, and Deckscape. And now let's move on to number seven Valletta. Oh. I actually, I was thinking, I, maybe I should actually put this higher on the list when it boils right down to it. I mean, I live in Malta. Finally, after years and years of playing Euro games, we've got a really cool Euro-style economic simulation set in my country, in the capital of Malta, Valletta, where um, players are doing deck building to build up the capital city. It's got a lot of really cool systems in it. I have to admit, I haven't looked into this that closely. It's from designer Stefan Dora, who's made some amazing games. He did For Sale, Milestones, Pergamon, some really amazing designs. I guess I've only got two worries here. One, several of Stefandora's games are less than ideal at two, but I've heard nothing but good things that this plays really well with two. And then number two, I'm a little worried that this game, some of the cards you have that you deck build have a little bit of take that, like stealing resources from each other, but I understand that in a two-player game, you don't steal from the other player, you steal from the bank! So, awesome sauce. I... 
I'm so sad that here I am living in Malta, and I do not have a copy of this game, and I'm not at Gen Con to be able to pick one up. I probably won't get one until October when I get it at Essen Spiel, and I'll just have to wait and wait and wait. I've heard nothing. This um, is just really flying under the radar. It hasn't really gotten a lot of attention, because so far it's only been available in Europe. Hopefully, things will change at Gen Con, and it'll sell out, because... I mean, it looks really nice, and I suspect if you're a Euro fan like me and my wife Jen, you're going to absolutely love Valletta. Now, move on to number six, Edge of Humanity. Now, this is a deck builder set in a post-apocalypse America. Which apocalypse, you ask? That's your choice. One of the coolest... There's two really cool things about this deck builder. One is, as part of setup, you have to make an event deck. And every round, you're going to draw, and that's going to make some event that affects everybody as everybody's trying to survive and build the best colony in this post-apocalyptic landscape. But the apocalypse, you get three to choose from. What you do as part of setup, when you're building the event deck, you take either, I think it's um, Plague or Zombies... Or um, Alien Invasion. Those are the three apocalypses. You pick one, and then you pick a location, which I believe is either Big City, New York, Small Town, Arizona, or um, you know, out in the wilderness, Nebraska. So three radically different environments, three radically different um, apocalypses. You take one of each, shuffle it all up, and that's going to be your customized apocalypse you're going to play through in this particular game. So, right off the bat, that's really super cool. And um, in this game, we're each trying to survive, run the best colony we can, recruit new people who have skills, scavenge resources and all that, but it's a deck builder. And one of the things I've loved most in recent deck builders is this notion of not only do you build a deck, but you tear your deck down, deck destruction, where over the course of the game, yeah, I put a lot of cool stuff, but I have to keep ripping stuff out of my deck. In this game, when it gets to the point where you can add new cards to your deck, what you have to do is every card you've got, every resource, every person, every um, whatever you might have, counts um, as bartering material. And so when you go to buy stuff, you can sacrifice, you can trash cards from your hand that you would use to survive. You can trash them. That represents you trading them away to get new, better cards. So at once, you are thinning your deck out and building it up with better stuff. That is absolutely bonkers brilliant. I love that. It's so thematic. It's such a cool idea. And then on top of that, there's another thing where one of the big things you're doing is um, building Making buildings, building buildings for your colony. And so if you have a building card and you put it into play, you have to, once again, permanently sacrifice resources by, by you know, giving up other cards to build that up. And if you don't have enough resources to finish the building in one round, you can build these buildings over multiple rounds because it might take you a while to get this building built. But while you're building it, since you haven't used those resources yet, in the meantime, you can use those resources for other things. There's just a lot of really cool ideas in this game. And and I'm super duper stoked for it. That was Edge of Humanity. Uh, next up, we've got the quest for El Dorado. Now, I've already done a run through for this. This is an absolutely brilliant racing deck builder from Dr. Reiner Knizia. Jen and I absolutely adore it. I thought it deserved to uh, win the Kennerspiel des Jahres this year, it was nominated for the Kennerspiel. Unfortunately, it lost. Interestingly, it lost 
to um, the exit, the game series. So that was the actual winner of the Kenner Spiel and the runner-up, um, which is also making its um, you know American debut at Essen. Quest for El Dorado is a phenomenal game. Another deck builder, um, really really clever. It's very lean, very to the metal. Um, every choice you make is really really impactful, and Jen and I have enjoyed it very much. You can watch Jen and I actually filmed an entire run through from start to finish with the internet playing a three player game. I will say Quest for El Dorado, I think, is better at a higher player count because it works at two, but it becomes very cutthroat as a two-player game because each player has two explorers that they have to build their deck to try and race through the jungle to find El Dorado. And a big part of this game is blocking the path so that other players can't get through. When you play with three or four players, you only have one explorer. So if you're blocking the path, then you're not moving forward, and you're probably falling behind somebody else. But in a two-player game, you can block a choke point, like through a mountain pass or something like that, that um, your opponent has to go through as well. You could park there with one of your explorers, and then have your other explorer just zip on to the end while you deck build and move them forward. And then that forces your opponents to have to go the long way around the mountain instead of taking the pass because you're blocking it. So it still works. I mean, Jen, I really love it as a two-player game, but it's just a little bit more cutthroat. It also, the deck building itself has this very, very cool deck market system, which I have never seen in any other deck builder. Again, go watch the run-through to see how it works. This is a brilliant game. It totally deserved the nomination, and personally, I thought it deserved the win for um, Kenner Spiel of the Year, but great, great game, making its debut, uh, Quest for El Dorado. Next up, we've got a secret. I am so sorry, I cannot tell you folks what this is, but... um, It hasn't been announced yet. Uh, It will be announced on Wednesday, the day before, because I think the... uh, uh, Gen Con starts on Thursday, so on Wednesday it'll be announced, and I suspect on Wednesday there are going to be a lot of videos. You'll see a video from me about this. I, I suspect the publisher has sent um, you know pre-release copies to a bunch of folks and given us all this press embargo date that you know on this day at this particular time noon. Eastern on Wednesday, we can all make our videos and we can talk about it publicly. Then, in the meantime, all I can say is I've played it. It's awesome. It's surprising in a number of ways. And um, yeah, I mean, just absolutely. I mean, it's actually sitting right over there on my table right now. If I were just to, I'm sorry, I can't tell you. I can't tell you. But um, I mean, you know, just wait till this Wednesday and you'll say, oh, I see why you ranked this so high. Anyway, that's the secret one that I can't talk about. I think we're at number four now, right? I think that was the number four. Let's move on then to number three. Aeon's End War Eternal. Now, I did a quick talk through this uh, when it was on Kickstarter a few months ago. This is a standalone slash expansion to Aeon's End. And in fact, actually, Aeon's End, which is an amazing cooperative fantasy deck building, protect the village from never-ending hordes of, of evil, monstrous villains. It's, it's an absolutely brilliant game. We love the base to tears. When I saw the um, redesign that the cards got for the expansion, they you know they t- they completely rejigged it so it no longer has an old school Magic the Gathering feel. Now they you know the the, the art really pops. It you know goes from border to border. It looks so much nicer. The game always played brilliantly, but now it looks brilliant too. And this War Eternal expansion added a bunch of really cool stuff. Now you don't need to get the original 
Aeons in. Like I said, this is totally standalone. And if you're going to buy one, I would suggest buying War Eternal. Um, but, I mean, ultimately, once you've played it, you're going to want to get all the Aeons in stuff. It's absolutely phenomenal. I think it's not quite my number one. I think it's my number two uh, favorite all-time cooperative deck builder. Um, absolutely great, great stuff. Aeons in. But let's move on. We're not done yet. Number two... My second most anticipated game of the show, and I'm sure for a lot of people this will be number one. I'm sure for a lot of people they will. I mean, you know, this is probably going to be one that sells out very quickly, or they'll have to parcel it out so it only sells out, you know, piecemeal over several days. But heck, even if you don't get it, I'm sure it'll be available. Heck, maybe it already is available. I don't live in America. I don't know. But my number two is Codenames Duet which I am so excited about. Codenames is already such a phenomenal cooperative experience. Now, I know most people don't view it that way because most people don't play Codenames as a two-player game uh, because Codenames is really a party game. You, the more players you have, the better. It's a team versus team thing where um, teams of spies face off against each other trying to... Do I even need to describe Codenames? Everybody knows Codenames. It's so great. Um, but it's a... Uh, Oh, what would you call it? Uh, I have to come up with a secret code name that will tell everybody on my team what it is I want them to figure out, and hopefully they can intuit. Because all I can do is just say one word and how many elements it touches on the board, and then they have to figure out what elements I'm referring to. It's an absolutely brilliant game. Uh, Codenames Pictures is brilliant, too. I like Codenames better than Codenames Pictures, but regardless, they were both great cooperative. In fact, I actually, Jen and I played Codenames cooperatively with the internet when I did a run-through for it. You can go check that out. But I could not be more excited about Codenames Duet. I cannot wait to play it because this is designed from the ground up to be a cooperative game. And it looks like it takes Codenames that was already just an amazeball and takes it to an 11. Um, I'm so excited. I cannot wait to play this with Jen. I'm sure this is going to, once we have it and we played it, this is going to push itself into all kinds of top 10 favorites of all time because we already loved Codenames so much um, where it was a party game that, oh, by the way, it works as a co-op now that it was made from the ground up to be co-op with a bunch of really cool systems, including campaign play. Who would have thought it? They actually put a campaign system in the game as well where you travel all around the world uh, and play through multiple sessions. Absolutely phenomenal. My number two, Codenames Duets. Super excited, super jealous that I will not be seeing this game probably for months. I probably won't get it till October. Ah! Why should I complain? Uh, living in Malta is awesome, although maybe not on days like today, because I don't know if you can tell. Oh, so, so hot. Uh, but anyway, um, let's talk about the number one, shall we? My number one must-have, would-not-leave-without-it dragon fire which is the dungeons and dragons themed sequel to Shadowrun crossfire oh my goodness um if you've watched rotto runs through for any length of time it would have been hard for you to miss my deep and abiding unending love for Shadowrun Crossfire. It is my... I forget. See, it, it vacillates between my number two and my number three game of all time. Um, you know, it uh, you know occupies that space alongside Gloomhaven and Agricola. Those three are always... Or I'm sorry, not Agricola. That's number four. Uh, Pandemic and uh, Shadowrun Crossfire and Gloomhaven are all fighting for numbers one, two, and three. 
Um, Shadowrun Crossfire is amazing. I have played it well over 50 times now, which may not sound like a lot to some people, but for me, that's a big deal because I rarely get to play games over and over again because I always have to move forward to play new games. But I will make the time for Shadowrun Crossfire. It's so amazing. And if you went back and ever watched my original run-through I did for Shadowrun, you may recall the only thing I complained about is, man, um, I'm just not that big a fan of the Shadowrun um, setting, which is a... Uh, a Blade Runner meets fantasy future world where orcs and goblins and elves hang out and fight major corporations and use science fiction technology. I, at the time, I wished, man, I just wish this was set in some kind of high fantasy universe. And now it is. At long last, the same great cooperative deck-building adventure gameplay has been transplanted literally into the Dungeons & Dragons universe. Um, with, uh, with several new features, uh, you know, that, you know, that Add and change up the gameplay, but the same great campaign, borderline legacy gameplay, where you, um, you know, as you play session after session after session, you level your character up and you unlock stickers to give you permanent abilities that will forever change you um, while you take on seemingly unbeatable, unstoppable enemies that will not let you go. I, I, did I mention Shadowrun Crossfire? A lot of people complain that the game is too unrelentingly hard and unfair. Jen and I, we've never felt that way. We absolutely love the game to bits and cannot wait for the fantasy sequel, Dragonfire. And that's my number one. Oh my goodness, that is a really, really cool top ten. I would not leave town without all of those in my back pocket. I am so jealous that, um, you know, well, I, I do have a few of them, to be fair. I already have my Notre Dame and Year of the Dragon. I got those a long time ago. And, um, uh, and you know, I've already done all the escape room things. Been there, done that. And, uh, but, oh, man, so many of these. Oh, and I've got my quest for El Dorado. But I want all of these games. And, of course, my secret game that I cannot talk about. Oh, man, this is, this is going to be a great, great show, folks. And uh, that's it. Okay. So hold on for a bit, and we'll be right back with... What will we do next? Will we do demos? I think we'll do demos. No, we'll do expansions next, and then we'll end with demos. Okay, everybody, hold on. Okay, game's out of the way. Let's spend a little bit of time hunting the old expansions. So I've got 20 in total that I have noted on the Geek Preview tool. Seven of them are only available for demo, and 13 are available to buy. So right now, I'm just going to go through those 13. And after we're done with that, when we get to the demo section, I'll just mix and match the demoable games along with the demoable expansions because why not okay and so these once again are not sorted by my own personal preference i did that for the top 10 but now i'm just gonna go having them back to sorted by board game geek enthusiasm which is to say i've sorted them by oh what was it the must-have category i don't know maybe some people would have preferred to see what my personal preference in these were sorting-wise, but oh my gosh, that would have taken hours. And besides, I thought there'd be some benefit for people knowing how kind of the geek 
Geekosphere is rating these things because if you're worried about not being able to pick up game X, Y, or Z, you probably want to go for the ones that have a lot of people saying they must have because they'll be the ones to sell out first. So I figured it'd be of some use, just in case you're wondering if there is any method to my madness whatsoever. Of course, the answer to that is no, but I like to pretend. Anywho, let's start talking about expansions now, starting at the bottom of the Geekosphere must-have list. Spirit Island, Branch, and Claw. And I can only assume this one came in so low because, of course, most people don't have the base game yet. Although, as you might imagine, I'm pretty excited about this, seeing as how the base game made my top ten. And, yeah, I don't know much about this. Two new spirits, it says here. Sharp Fang Behind the Leaves and Keeper of the Forbidden Wilds. That sounds like a really cool character to play as. Uh, a new adversary, France. I didn't mention that before. Uh, one of the elements you can add, there's several different modules in the base game, including, oh, I want to go up against specific countries. And not just generic settlers, but settlers from um, uh, England or settlers from Spain or whatever. Now, there are settlers from France who will function different than other settlers. I imagine they'll be all about those grapes. And uh, But this is the coolest thing. Uh, those others are nice, but the big thing is an events deck that uh, you'll draw a card from, uh, see, every round. Oh, yeah, event decks happen every turn, adding further variation to the gameplay. That is huge for replayability. I love event decks in cooperative games. Although, man, I hope they do it right. Very few games do this. It's, I mean, it's fine, but... Designers, if you're thinking about adding an event deck to your game, whatever whatever type of game it might be, may I strongly recommend that you implement a system where we reveal what the upcoming event is, and then we have a certain amount of time to prepare for it, a turn or two or something like that, instead of, hey, at the beginning of the turn, here's the new event, suck it! Some of you were very lucky and are in the right position through um, no strategy of your own. You didn't know this was coming, but you benefit, and you, who weren't prepared for this random thing, you get crushed. <laughs> I, don't, I do not understand. There, there are enough games out there that do events smartly where you get a chance to see them coming and prepare that adds more strategic weight to the game. Fingers crossed that um, Eric Roos the designer of Spirit Island, Branch and Claw, was smart enough to implement them. Time will tell. But let's move on to our next must-have with nine people are after it, Nefarious Becoming a Monster. Now, I have to admit, I'm kind of surprised by that because I didn't think anybody had played Nefarious. I didn't know there'd be any must-haves. Me personally, I actually... Jen and I, we like Nefarious. Unfortunately, we have the original first printing from the publisher that has since gone out of business. And you know, then it got picked up by another publisher. They reprinted it. And now this new publisher is printing this expansion. And so I can only assume that means this expansion will not be compatible with my original version because the art has changed and all that. So that makes me kind of sad. Ah, <sighs> maybe... I don't know. Well, if I were there, I mean, maybe I'd just pick up the expansion plus the new version and give my old version away to the local game group. That, something like that would work. But it doesn't matter, because I'm not there. I'm here, drenched in sweat. But anyway, that was nine people. Are after, 50 people are interested. Only 27 people are interested in Spirit Island, Branch, and Claw. Nine people must have 50 people interested for Nefarious becoming a monster. Now, this is a very interesting one. And uh, it's for Catacombs, the disc-flicking game that I just raved about a little bit ago. 
It is Catacombs Wervens of Waylemere. And this is awesome. Basically, it introduced, uh, I assume it introduces a bunch of stuff, but the thing I'm really interested in is these new discs, these really big discs called Wervens. And um, the players have the ability to tame the Wervens and then put their characters on top of the Wervens so they ride around on Wervens. And then the Wervens have like these big, gigantic area effect type attacks that they can do. And meanwhile, the player controlling the monsters has to knock the player off of the Werven so that they can then take control and use them. It sounds very cool. A neat little tug of war. I mean, there's already some elements like that in the base game, but yeah, I really, really like this idea. From what I've seen of it, it should be very, very cool. And there are 23 must-havers and 122 interested in this. But heck, if you're there and you have catacombs, it's a no-brainer. You kind of have to get this, I would think. Although, I mean, you know, catacomb stuff is expensive. Man, if I should have sorted this by price. Anyway, uh, interestingly, I'll talk about this a little bit later, but there are, uh, in addition to the, the Wervens of Waylemere, which you can buy, there are a couple of other catacombs things that are available for demo, but we'll cover them later. Next up, oh, come on, folks. This would be my number one. Uh, 27 people must have it. 58 people are interested in it. What is it? Dragonfire Character Pack. Heroes of the Sword Coast. So this, I believe, will add new, unique, playable characters. Yes, it says right here, adds additional classes and races. So this is different than Shadowrun. When Shadowrun Crossfire came out, they also had a character pack, but they were the exact same characters, just with different art. So it was like an alternate art pack. It was important anyway, because it also came with duplicates of the stickers, so that you could do more mixing and matching and experimenting with characters. I assume that's the case here, but this also says that it adds additional classes and races, so I assume that means entirely new stuff as well. Then we've got one, two expansions for Aeon's End. In addition to War Eternal, which I mentioned in the top ten, Aeon's End The Void and Aeon's End Outer Dark are going to be available. Uh, 33 and 36 people must have, and 87 and 83 interested. That's really weird. You would expect those two things to be the exact same number. Who's saying, yeah, you know what, I, I must have this one, but I don't have to have the other one. That makes no sense to me. Why wouldn't you get both of them if you love Aeon's End? Because you should, because Aeon's End is awesome. But then we move along to Quadropolis Public Services. 43 people, gotta have it. 142 people are thinking about it. And, uh, let's see, this is, I was about to say it's cool, but actually I've done a run-through form, and so you can hear what um, Jen and I thought in that video. Suffice to say, it's a good expansion, I'm glad I happened, but I was a little disappointed. I think it almost needs some house rules. But then if we move on, oh, no, you know what, this might be my number one. Yeah, I think I'd rate this. Although, so again, board game geekers, you're wrong. But 48 people must have, and 159 people are interested in automobiles racing season. Now, if uh, automobiles is phenomenal. It was one of the best games that came out whatever year it came out in. It was a bag builder. 
um, where uh, the, your bag is full of cubes, and every round you pull some cubes out, and that determines what abilities you have available to be moving your car around the track, or how far you can move your car, or a mix and match of those two things. It was a brilliant system with tons of replayability, because it had, every time you play, the there are cards you draw randomly that determine what the different color cubes mean. So you always get this new and unique combination of abilities for your cars. That in and of itself is great. My only complaint about the original automobiles was that the two tracks that it came with are great for higher player count, but they're a little dull for two players, which of course is how the only way I play it, or Jen and I play it. So, hooray for racing season. If I recall correctly, I think it adds four new maps, or maybe it was three, or maybe it was two. It ad- let's see. Actually, let's just hit more details and see if it says. Three new tracks. That's right. Three new tracks. Two of them are super tiny double lane tracks that are specifically made for two player. Or, I suppose, for an incredibly tight three player game. And so that makes me ever so happy. I'll be honest. It's not my preferred solution. I would still rather have dummy cars on the board, like, say, what um, Kraftwagen does to replicate other... I'd rather have dummy cars on the board than shrink the board, but I'll happily take shrinking the board. Uh, anything to make it a bit more interesting and a bit more engaging with, with uh, two players. So that's cool, but what's arguably even cooler is, um, well, two things. One, in the base game, you got to, every time you played, the cards you drew as you know part of the random setup determine the different abilities of your car and your crew. Now, in addition to that, each player gets a specific driver that means each player has their own special driver-based ability as well. That's super awesome. But the most awesome thing of all... No, no, no. The two-player is still the most awesome thing. But uh, you know, th- this is just a box full of awesome. The other incredibly awesome thing is campaign play, where you can play over a series of races and keep your upgrades... You know, keep your bag full of you know, the upgrades and the, um, the bad... The brown cubes, the, you know, the, the wear and tear that your car has taken, so that you will have to continue to evolve your car from race to race to race. That is awesome! So I'm very, 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 very excited for automobiles racing season. That would be a must-get for me, hugely, big time. Next up, we got Valeria Card Kingdom's Flames and Frost. I did a run-through for this when it was on Kickstarter, so you can go check that out. Uh, Valeria Card Kingdoms is a wonderful little game. You know, uh, Machi Koro for gamers, basically. And uh, this expansion definitely added a lot of cool stuff. I mean, some very, very neat, neat elements. Again, you can watch the run-through. My only complaint about was it really kind of doubled down on the being able to attack each other. There was already some of that in the base game, and now there's more of it. So... Yeah, I kind of have mixed feelings about it. Uh, you know, why? Why? I mean, as I, I think I said in the original video, Valeria Car Kingdoms, you don't need all this take that. You're great without it. So, I mean, for players who like that kind of stuff, there's definitely more of it in Flames and Frost. Next up, uh, let's see. Ooh, 87. Ooh, a big jump. There's 57 people on Valeria. Now 87 people must have. And 149 are interested in Time Stories Lumen Fide, which is the latest storyline. And for my money, 
the best to date. Although I think for some people, it's the worst to date. It's a real Marmite. I talked about some of uh, why that is in my final thoughts. I did it without spoilers, so feel free to go watch it. But who are we kidding? If you're into time stories, you're going to get this. You kind of got to, don't you? Okay. Next up, we've got Between Two Cities Capitals, uh, which 94 people must have. And uh, 211 are interested in. Yet another one that I've done a run-through for. I mean, this came out a long time ago, didn't it, Eric? Eric, I don't understand. But anyway, um, this would definitely be a must-have for me uh, if I didn't already have it. Uh, It adds so much to the base game, and the base game was already so good. I had one complaint, which is, if I recall correctly, the game comes with three different modules that add a bunch of interesting stuff. And I think they really missed a trick by forcing you to either have none of the modules... Or all of them. You can't mix and match. I understand why they did it for balance, but it's still just kind of a bummer. And really, that's a minor complaint on what is otherwise an excellent expansion. And two more to go. Like I said, there weren't very many. Um, easy list here. We Next up, we've got Nations, the Dice Game, Unrest. Must-haves are 110, and Interesteds are 205. Okay, this is my new would-be-at-the-top-of-my-list. Yeah, I mean, these are all important expansions. Well, here's the thing. I mean, if you like the base game, you didn't, you have already have it. Whatever, it doesn't matter what I say. You already know whether you're going to like the expansion or not. But um, you know, the, it's interesting I mentioned that here because Nations of the Dice game, uh, Unrest expansion, I think is a bit more important than most because it really does kind of fill in the blank. There was... Nations of the Dice game is already great, but there's a huge thing that's missing if you're a fan of Nations the full game, and that is unique nation startup powers. It just didn't have any. No matter what nation you started with, they were all the same. The di- uh, Unrest adds a bunch of stuff. It adds the concept of unrest and, and various things. But most importantly, it adds unique nation powers. That in and of itself makes this a must-get. And the interesting thing is, I think... For some people who maybe didn't like Nations enough, with Unrest, that might push them over. Or Nations of the Dice game, it wasn't good enough. They might want to revisit Nations of the Dice game with this expansion. I think this is a significant game changer for it. And speaking of, the number one on this list at 176 people. Wow, I think that's a, that's a huge jump. Um, 223 interested, Orléans or Orleans, depending on how you want to pronounce it, Trade and Intrigue. Once again, I've already done a video for this because so many of these have been out for a long time already, but we'll let that go. Uh, um, (laughs) i got to stop that. So, the Intrigue, which is a really... gives you a lot of opportunities for directly attacking players and just makes the game an incredibly vicious, vicious affair. I would never use, but it doesn't really matter because, um, you know, the base game comes with a board where you can do bag thinning, taking workers out of your bag and get rid of them completely to get little benefits. But those benefits were always kind of boring. It now has a new replacement board for that starter one that, again, like the Nation's Dice Game Unrest expansion, this is game-changing. This adds so, so, so much. It enriches the base game so much, you would never go back to the original board once you had it. So this is kind of a must-get as well. Although you can watch my run-through to see a bit more about why that is. Phew, that was quick. That was a nice change of pace after those um, 
long hauls. So that's it for must-get expansions, folks. And now, after this uh, quick break, we will come back and finish it out with games to demo. And oh my gosh, how many are on that list? I'm afraid. Let me just go on ahead and look. Sneak Peekville, uh, bottom of the page. Oh, there's over 50 of them. Oh, wish me luck. Okay, folks, we're in the home stretch. And I think, you know what, I can't spend as much time talking about each game. And that's okay because a lot of these games I'm going to know next to nothing about uh, because, you know, they're not available to buy. They're only available in demo form. Heck, some of these will be seeing light for the first time. So I'm just going to try and blow through this as quick as possible because you got places to go and I got showers to take after I walk dogs who um, are getting a little bit rambunctious. So let's just jump right into it. Games and expansions at the show that can be demoed but not bought. Once again, sorted by um, you know the must-haveness, although, of course, no one can have any of these, and yet people still mark them as must-have. I don't think they understand how it works. That's okay. Let's go for it. Starting at the bottom of the list, nobody must have Dice Age The Hunt. And parentheses, that's because it's not actually on the list. I don't know why it's missing. This is actually on the official Gen Con uh, 2017 preview geek list, but it's not in the new preview tool. So they're a little bit off sync there. I'm sure it'll get added. Uh, I'm sure it's just an oversight on Eric's part. But anyway, like I said right up front, I don't know anything about this. It's set in some Asian... Jap- or it's set in um, you know, ancient Japan. You're rolling dice to go through hunting grounds and accumulate wealth. I don't know. I like rolling dice. Maybe it's good. Maybe it's bad. It features dice and animals and set collection. We'll see. Um, dice Age the Hunt. Uh, it wouldn't be high on my list, but if I happened to walk by it, I'd want to know a little bit more. Then we get to Black Souls. Now, this one I do want to know more about because I love the idea of this. This is a game where players are video game developers, specifically level designers, trying to make the best levels for their video games. How do you know if it's the best? Because game testers or focus group testers will go through the levels, and they want to be challenged... But they don't want to die. So if you kill them too many times, you'll lose points. But if you make it too easy, you'll lose points because they think it's boring. I love that idea. Not uh, just because, of course, I was a video game designer for 20 years. But I just think it's a really, really clever idea. It looks like it has really cute art. Sounds like it should be a very, very neat and fresh and interesting theme. Black Souls. Next up, we got Metal Dawn. I've done a run-through for this. This is a very cool cooperative game that is G.I. Joe meets the Terminator, or G.I. Joe versus the Terminator, basically. Neat game, fun, watch my run-through for more. Uh, Or try it yourself at the show. After that, we've got Konja, K-O-N-J-A. 
I'm excited about this one because this is effectively a sequel to Ancient Terrible Things. It's from the same designer, uh, same artist, uses the same dice-driven gameplay, but it's for two players only, which um, I, um, some people think is the best way to play Ancient Terrible Things. And it has to do with rolling dice to conjure the spirits to control the weather, which sounds pretty cool. I mean, Jen and I, we love Ancient Terrible Things, so we're very interested in Conja. Especially because it's two-player only, baby. Next up, we got the big score. I'd never heard of this at all before I started going through the list. It's from Van Ryder Games. It's a card drafting game. And it's all about getting ready for and pulling off a massive bank heist. The first half of the game, you're drafting cards to build up your crack team of thieves. And I guess doing little jobs to make money to recruit more thieves and more card drafts. And then eventually, once all the card drafting is done, everybody makes a run at the same time at you know the big final vault, like the last boss. And it's a pusher luck element is be able to make it in and get out with as much stuff as possible. The big score sounds like an awesome, fun theme, Ocean's Eleven come to life. Then we've got Samurai Gardener, which um, is interesting. It is a game from Hisashi Hiyashi, who's just been, you know, it's just becoming ubiquitous these days. I mean, I just did a run-through for Okie Doke a little while ago. His Yokohama was awesome. Trains is cool. He's getting more and more games out there. And this is a little, uh, it's a tile-laying game, but there's a couple interesting things about it. One, it's real-time which is always catches my interest. I love real-time board gaming. And it seems like the tiles have multiple things on them. So, you know, they're actually not tiles, they're cards. So like Honshu, trying to um, lay the tiles down, but also stack them on top of each other to get the ideal layout. But doing it in real time sounds like it could be very, very cool. Samurai Gardener. Then you've got Way of the Panda. I don't know anything about this other than it's a worker placement game where your workers are a monk, merchant, and warrior panda um, that, you know, I don't know, I typify, you know, the, 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 I don't know, I don't know what, I don't know what. It's from Cool Mini or not. So I'm assuming that means awesome panda minis in, um, you know, ancient uh, Japanese uh, warrior, merchant, and monk garb. Uh, pff, why wouldn't you want to demo that? Should be very, very cool. Uh, Stygian Society. This is a total must-have for me. People are crazy putting this so low on the list. I mean, this would be near the top of the list for me. It, it, I've talked about it several times in previous podcasts. and This is a, a cooperative fantasy adventure game where you're trying to make it through a tower, but the tower is an actual physical game component. It is, um, it, you know, there's a, it's a cube tower the same way as Shogun or Wallenstein or Amerigo. You use that cube tower to determine how well it is you're fighting your way through the tower in this cooperative game. I love everything about this, and yet I know almost nothing about it. I've been excited for this game for over a year. Finally, people will get a chance to play it. Actually, I think it was available for like uh, limited demos last year. Uh, so somebody, go there and demo it and take pictures! I want to know more about this game! It's been driving me nuts for a year. Next up, we've got Dice Hospital. This apparently was very well-received at um, the UK Games Expo a few months ago when it was demoed there. And actually, it says uh, this is only available for demo only on Friday and only for ticket holders. So if you want to demo Dice Hospital, you can't just walk up and say, hey, where do I sit? you got to prepare for that. Uh, dice rolling game. I think the dice are the patients in the hospital. Everybody's working really hard to try to keep them alive. Love it. 
After that, we got Hands of Fate Ordeals. This was on Kickstarter a while ago. I don't know anything about it. It is a fantasy deck builder. It looks like it has really, really nice art. And that's why you demo games, right? To find out more about them. I know nothing other than it looks nice. Richard the Lionheart. I believe this is from Cool Mini or Not, isn't it? Yeah. It's from Cool Mini or Not. It is set, uh, you know, in that post-Crusades, <clears throat> Richard returning home, Robin Hood and the Merry Men. And apparently, uh, we are people, we are knights returning home from the Crusades, and we ally either with Robin Hood or um, John Lackland, whoever that is. And we travel across England, gathering prestige points, um, and influence the Crusades from afar. Uh, and at the end, the game ends when Richard returns. I don't know. This says nothing. So I guess you gotta you gotta go uh, demo it, don't you? Wait a minute. Who's the designer? Let's see. I don't know that I recognize that name. Oh, hold on a second. Um, all right. Oh, ah. <clears throat> hold on a second, folks. I am dying of thirst here. Let me get a drink of water. Let's see. Oh my gosh! Yeah. I did recognize that name. It is from, uh, I don't know how to pronounce his name. It's Italian. Uh, Andrea uh, Civervisio, who uh, was the designer of Kingsburg. And more recently, well, Hyperborea, you know, what evs. But, oh gosh, what's the other one? It's a game I'm in love with, and I just can't remember it. Kingsburg. Oh, Signore. He was the co-designer on Signore. Which is an awesome game. So, okay, that's why you should be excited uh, about Richard the Lionheart. This is from the designer or co-designer of Signore. After that, we've got London. This is crazy. This is out of the blue. Uh, I guess it's been out of print for quite a while. And uh, Osprey Games is bringing Martin Wallace's wonderful game back. Jen and I absolutely adore this. And I'm very interested because it does say, I have read that there are going to be some tweaks and changes to the core game. Cards removed, uh, fewer cubes, uh, which means, in theory, a shorter game. I don't really know. Uh, it be interesting to see. I'm very happy with mine. Uh, after you use the specific two-player variants, because the the two-player experience out of the game, out of the box, wasn't great. Maybe those have been introduced? I don't know. Uh, Looks like totally new art. A complete revamp of London. Very interesting. I definitely want to know more. And I would also like to know more about Cowboy Bebop, the board game. One of the few animes I have ever enjoyed, and I'll be honest, that's the only reason it's on this list, is because of the IP. It doesn't say who's designing it. It's from Jasco Games. Are they the guys who did Mega Man? Wasn't that, like, very not good? I'm not sure. Let's do a quick open and look-see-see. Uh, oh, no, no, no. They've done Albion's Legacy, which I don't know anything about. All righty. So, yeah, no. I'm back to... Nope, nope, they did do uh, the Mega Man. Oh, no, no, they did some other Mega Man game. Mega Man Pixel Tactics and Street Fighter. Okay, yeah, they've done a bunch of stuff. I know nothing of any of their stuff. I know nothing. But uh, I do know that I like Cowboy Bebop. So uh, you know, I'm sure the uh, theme song music will be playing through my head as I, I, as I demo it. A Thousand and One Oddities, or Odysseys. Man, I think I did demo this years ago. Didn't I? Or no, no, no. I, I demoed a different game at, at, at Asmati. So, Yeah. This is a cooperative dice-rolling storytelling adventure game. Wasn't it 1001 Odysseys? I'm not sure. 
But I like cooperative dice rolling, storytelling, variable player powers games. So I'd be interested in demoing that. After that, oh, this one I know I would want to try. Legends of Sleepy Hollow from Greater Than Games. Uh, designed by Ben Pinchback and Matt Riddle, the team who did uh, Fleet. But I've actually enjoyed several of their other games, including the recent Goonies game. And this is another cooperative game with features storytelling, um, variable player powers, and it uh, basically is set in the world of Sleepy Hollow. Not, I assume, the uh, TV show from... It looks like this is uh, original art. So, I guess, the, set in the original storyline. But, yeah, I mean, those guys do great work. I think they deserve more attention. So, I'd definitely be interested in this one. Diceborn Heroes. Man, I did a run-through for this one. It was on Kickstarter. This game is phenomenal. And it looks like it's got very limited windows for when you want to demo it. Definitely seek it out. I don't know why it's not higher on this list. It's only 11 must-haves. I mean, folks, this is a g- amazing game. But again, you can watch my run-through to find out more. Neat little dice-driven fantasy cooperative adventure. Fun, fun game. After that, we've got Hero Realms, The Ruins of Thandar. Campaign deck. The only reason I have Hero Realms, because it is definitely not a game Jen and I would enjoy in its base state, is because of the potential of this campaign-driven gameplay, cooperative gameplay that this this new expansion adds. Uh, apparently, you'll be able to pre-order it there after you demo it to if, prove if you like it or not. This would definitely be something I'd want to be demoing so that I would know whether I should keep Hero Quest uh, or Hero Realms. Uh, let's see. Ancestry. I would have thought for sure this would have been for sale, but uh, apparently not. It's from Eric Lang, and it is a card drafting game where players are drafting to get the best cards to build up a big family tree. I like that idea. I'm always looking for an Eric Lang game that Jen and I would enjoy. This seems like our best chance to date. Ancestry. And then after that, we got Firefly Adventures, Brigands and Browncoats. So I understand the publisher, Gale Force 9. I have not played any of their games. But apparently, they put out phenomenal games that aren't just quick cash-grab tie-ins to um, geek-popular um, you know, TV shows or movies or whatever, that they really do a great job of bringing the original franchise to life. I mean, I know that was true for Spartacus, and apparently people really love Firefly. And so now they're doing uh, you know, the, the space pick up and deliver game. So they're doing another one, Brigands and Browncoats. So I'm interested because, hey, it's cooperative. All their other games have definitely not been the type of game Jen and I would enjoy. But yay, a co-op game. And I love Firefly. You can't take this guy from me. Um, And my only concern is it's a tactical skirmish game. So, oh, I don't know. Does it say dice rolling? It doesn't say dice rolling. If it's skirmishing without roll to resolve... Like, say, a certain Gloomhaven, maybe it'll be interesting after all. We'll see. Worth demoing. And then, um, right after that on the player must-have list is, again, Gale Force 9, Doctor Who, Time of the Daleks. Hooray! Actually, no, this is interesting. This is a semi-cooperative game. There is one winner, although everybody can lose if people don't work together to keep the Daleks at bay. And so, I'm interested in this one. I mean, I like Doctor Who. I I, I don't love it, but I, I, I enjoy it. And I'm trying to catch up on um, the uh, the current season, and you know it's great that you know there's going to be a female doctor. That's all incredibly awesome. So anyway, but blah, 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 blah. all right. So the game, um, it's interesting. Gale Force Nine just contacted me just the other day out of the blue and said, "Hi, we've never contacted you before. Would you be interested in covering um, Doctor Who: Time of the Daleks?" They uh, sent me a copy of the rules. I read the rules and I said, 
this looks pretty interesting. Uh, it's basically, uh, I mean, it's it's super Doctor Who fan service, it, like crazy. All just tons and tons of cards, um, you know, of all of characters and locations and items. If I recall correctly, the base game only comes with four Doctors. I think it's uh, David Tennant, Matt Smith. Um, and uh, the very first Doctor, whose name I don't remember, the actor, and um, the the fourth one, the one that everybody loves with the floppy hat and the scarf. Sorry, uh, Baker. Is it Kyle Baker? Ken Baker? Uh, the, the Baker Doctor. I believe it's just those four, and they plan on expanding and adding more Doctors and all the stuff from the different seasons of the different Doctors. There's a lot of replayability. The core gameplay is you, you have a whole bunch of characters. You, you get more and more characters, and the characters say which type of dice you can roll, and there's all kinds of problems taken from the shows and, and episodes that you have to uh, deal with, and you, you have to roll to succeed. Different types of dice are strong in different type of results, so you know, wow, for this one, I need a lot of green dice. I only have a couple green dice and some red dice. So my red dice might get the job done, but I'm not sure. But you know what? I'll go ahead and try it anyway, and I will ask my opponents, who are other doctors, to come and help. Because, you know, sometimes the doctors have crossovers. So you can have a crossover adventure where somebody could help you, and then, I mean, because they'll have the colors you really need, and then if you succeed together, you will share in the rewards. So I like that. Um, So it could be really interesting. Um, I'm not crazy about the role and resolve, but I am interested in the semi-cooperative nature of it. Uh, moving on. Uh, more licensed tie-in stuff. Walking Dead, No Sanctuary. Jen and I loved this. Loved this when I did a run-through for it when it was on Kickstarter last year. I've heard that they don't do good demos of it. Because I've heard people report, walk away from the demos, kind of being disappointed, and they didn't really see all the cool features of the game. So hopefully the, uh, the Cryptozoic will have trained their demo givers how to better teach the game. Because it's phenomenal. Watch my run-through to see why. Speaking of, next up is Victoriana. I've done a run-through for that. A neat little cooperative running around Victorian England, stopping super plots, taking on the role of Sherlock Holmes and Mina Harker and the Invisible Man and Alistair Crawley, if I recall correctly. I think that's right. It was a neat, fun little uh, demo. Or uh, a neat uh, co-op game. Definitely worth demoing, I think. Um, it was maybe a bit on the long side, if I recall correctly. I don't know if they would have addressed that or not. But, yeah, I mean, we definitely enjoyed our time with it. After that, Riverboat. A new game. Um, let's see. I think this is from Kiesling, isn't it? It's not Kramer. Yeah, it's just Michael Kiesling. And nothing is known about this game other than Mayfair is publishing it. And Michael Kiesling is uh, the designer. And Clemens Franz uh, is the uh, artist. That in and of itself is enough for me to almost buy it sight unseen. But, I mean, in the meantime, I'd certainly like to play a demo of it. Then, okay, we've got Catacombs Conquest, um, which I think is an expansion to the base game, so adds new stuff. And, uh, you know, and I loved Catacombs, so more Catacombs is good. Share Dream. I know nothing about this. I know nothing about this. This is a cooperative game set in the modern day where players... I guess what happens in their dreams becomes real in the real world, and they've got to deal with that. So that could be very, very cool, but it does feature dice rolling. So if it features rolling to resolve encounters, then I probably won't like it. But it looks like it has gorgeous art, and I love the modern-day setting with um, you know our dreams seeping into the real world. That's very, very cool. Speaking of dreams, how about the next one from Mind Clash? This would be very, very high on my list of things to try. Um, Cerebra, the inside world. Mind Clash, 
who have done Anachrony and before that, Trakirian, are making a name for themselves by doing insanely over-the-top, super complex Euro-style games that are incredibly thematic, incredibly rich, incredibly high production values. I'm assuming more of the same, where in this game, we... uh, Let's see, I believe we are you know, the creative spirits of the brain and we play emotion cards to make things happen. I don't really know. It sounds kind of far out, but you know, based on what Mind Clash has done before, I'm very, very interested in this one. And after that, you got Railways of Nippon, a new map for Railways of the World. Who would have thought? I would have thought we were done with that. But what's particularly interesting is this map of Japan is from designer Hisashi Hiyashi, again, or Hisashi Hiyashi. The man is everywhere. It makes perfect sense since he really got his big breakthrough was trains. So, of course, he would uh, do a map for the greatest train game of all time, uh, which I'm sure a lot of people are wrinkling their nose for me to even say that. But I said it, and I stand by it. Okay, after that, we've got, ooh, um, uh, right next to each other, Unlock Temple of Raw and unlock uh, Duaran Dungeon. Now it's interesting. You know these are little um, demos you can play for unlock at the convention, so you know whether you like the game before you buy the full thing. Now, ultimately, you don't have to go to a convention. You can just download PDFs of these because these are just a small handful of two-sided cards and play them yourself at home. But if you don't want to have to do that, it'd be great to get to play them at the show. Although, I mean, yeah, uh, I would love... I mean, we have actually... Jen and I, we played a couple of them. They're, I should warn you, these ones are not as good as the full ones You know, because they're really short. They're just kind of designed to get you in really quick. But they're still good. They give you a great idea of how they work. So they're both worth checking out if you don't want to have to print them out. But, I mean, heck, you can do it yourself at home and spend your demo time playing other things. After that, we got Epoch The Awakening. This was apparently, um, I think it just finished its Kickstarter. It looks gorgeous. It's a competitive adventure game. I haven't really paid much attention to it, but all I know is it looks really pretty. Museum. Oh, talk about pretty. This one is just drowning in art from Vincent Dutre. Uh, probably my favorite board game artist working today. So bright, so colorful, so gorgeous. I just want to play this game solely for him, solely for the art. I hope it's a good game. Holy Grail Games, the publisher, has been doing some good stuff lately. But I just, I just want to bask in its beauty. Museum. After that, we've got Agra, or Agra, from Michael Keller, who was one of the co-designers of uh, La Granja. Uh, and published by Quinn Games. So I'm just going to consider this the unofficial sequel to La Granja. I'm sure it's not. It's set in India in 1572, uh, but it, lo- you know, it's got, it looks like it's got a whole bunch of stuff going on. I haven't paid much attention because I know I want to check this out based solely on the pedigree of the developers of this game. Um, plus, it looks like it'll be gorgeous. So that I'd love to try. Fog of Love. Oh, if you got the time, this is a lovely thing to sit down and play with your significant other and get to, um, well, you can see the run-through I did of it a while ago. Man, that was a couple of years ago, wasn't it? Must be getting close to uh, playing. But yeah, you know, this, is, this is a very, very clever game. Got a lot of good stuff going on. And I wonder if, it, if they've changed anything. It's been, it's been going through a lot more development, obviously, because it's been a while. But Fog of Love is a very, very cool little cooperative relationship-building game. After that, we got Detective City of Angels from uh, Van Ryder Games, a mystery uh, film noir game. I talked earlier about Deadline, which was a cooperative solve the case. This one, 
I oh oh yeah 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 I've been excited about this one for quite a while. This one is a competitive solve the case, and here's the thing: it's player versus player. One player is the suspect, um, and the other players are the investigators, and the suspect is trying to cover up the crime, and the investigators are trying to uncover the crime, and apparently the investigator players can interrogate the suspect player. And the suspect player has to, you know, lie. Oh, man, I'm I'm very, very stoked for this. Sorry. I think I was getting a little carried away. I'm really, really interested in this one. I really want to sit down and interrogate Jen or try to evade her while she's interrogating me. This sounds so cool. Um, All right. After that, you got Tiny Epic Defenders, The Dark War, which um, it's interesting. It says here. It says here that it is an expansion for Tiny Epic Defenders, but I think that's wrong. I believe it's a re-implementation and is incompatible. So I think Eric might have it wrong, or maybe something's changed. I don't know. Either way, we love Tiny Epic Defenders, and this seems to add a bunch of cool new stuff, including a complete overhaul of the art, which is why I think it's not compatible. I don't think it's an expansion. But either way, um, hey, it's a good time to check it out. It's a fun little co-op. Then we've got more catacombs. This time, catacombs and castles. More catacombs is a good thing in my book. Motainai is getting an expansion. Wutai Mountain. Nice. Um, that game could definitely use some expansion content to try to get it, to, to get it a bigger um, play space so that it could rival what it ultimately needs to do, which is, it, it's going to be the closest I think we ever get to replacing Glory to Rome. It needs more stuff so that it can you know, compete with Glory to Rome's awesomeness. So I would love to see how well it um, fleshes out the base game. Next up, oh, maximum security for Magic Maze. I talked about Magic Maze earlier. Neat, neat, fun little cooperative game. Uh, It's interesting. Oh, so what gets added? Ventilation shaft, wall breaches, telekinesis, spells, guards, beholders, uh, locked escape, all kinds of stuff. That's really interesting. Um, I mean, it's interesting. I don't know. Our... Well, the reason we stopped playing is because just the base game was a bit too much for us. This is adding a whole bunch of extra stuff on top of that. But I guess, I mean, I could definitely see how uh, Magic Maze is a game that if you play a lot, you'll get to the point where it doesn't provide a challenge. So it's probably good they're adding more stuff. Ooh, yeah, baby. This might be my number one must demo because uh, we're getting close to the top of the list. Um, was it Edge of Darkness from AEG? This is going to be the third game from designer John D. Clare using the card crafting system that was um, pioneered in Mystic Vale. I talked about this earlier with the Custom Heroes game, the second one, but Edge of Darkness sounds Awesome. It's a deck builder like Mystic Veil was, um, crafting cards, a much bigger, deeper, richer experience. Um, And the interesting thing is it's a deck builder. Everybody has access to the one deck that everybody is building. That is very intriguing to me. I've seen, you've seen this in other games before, and it's worked really well. Um, adding that to the card crafting game where, hey, I crafted that card, and now you got it. What gives? Should be very, very cool. Edge of Darkness. This would definitely be one I would want to play. Another one I would hugely want to play. Yeah, it makes sense since we're getting up to the ones that more and more people want to play. Uh, Big Trouble in Little China, the game. 
I I like the movie. I mean, I'm not a diehard fan, but I definitely enjoyed the movie. And I mean, it's sense of humor, it's wacky quirkiness, and all that. And uh, and I love the thing that I know about this. That I really like is the board is two sided. You start out above the streets of Little China, doing jobs and solving problems and stuff like that. And then eventually, at some point, you um, you know get powered up enough that you clear off the board and flip it so that you go underground. Which of course is exactly how the movie worked. It's a dumb little thing, but I think that's actually really, really cool. I really like the idea of that. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how well, it, it, you know, if, if it captures the the fun and whimsy of the original movie. Oh, code names Marvel and code names Dis- Disney right next to each other. Now this is interesting. Uh, Marvel has must have sixty two, but interested two sixty six. Disney has must have seventy five. Interested two thirty six. So I guess more people are wait and see on superheroes than they are on classic Disney animated films. Either way, yeah, I don't know. I mean, Codenames Pictures was good, so it'll be interesting to see. I mean, these are obviously pictures of very specific things. Uh, I'm interested. I, I definitely want to check it out. Some one deck dungeon stuff. People love that one deck dungeon. Uh, Networks, the executives. I loved Networks. You can see the run through I did for that. Uh, and then I, um, uh, so yeah, more networks, more good stuff, more executives. Yay. Ooh. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think, yeah, this would be my number one. I just scrolled ahead to double check. This is, um, it's very, very high. We're near the end of the list. So a lot of people want to see this. If there was only one game I was going to demo, I think it would be this one. The Hunt for the Ring. This is an asymmetrical, one person is Gandalf sneaking around, the other person is the Nazgul trying to find him. Um, you know, so, you know, Scotland Yard kind of thing, or um, Spectre Ops, you know, Fury of Dracula type hidden movement. But what's interesting to me is, the player who's controlling Gandalf, Gandalf isn't in danger. It's Frodo who's in danger. And Frodo moves on his own. Gandalf doesn't stick with him. Just like the original source material, Gandalf is off doing other things, manipulating the big picture, while Frodo is on his own trying to find his way. So, um, as the Gandalf player, I don't have direct control. The Nazgul players are trying to find Frodo, I'm trying to protect Frodo, and that little hobbit, I'm assuming, won't always do the right thing, and sometimes will just walk right into a trap. That sounds so cool. I'm hoping, hoping, hoping this is finally the hidden movement game for me and Jen. Hunt for the Ring. But we're not done yet, folks. There's other stuff that the the uh, Geekosphere values even more. Next up, we've got Isle of Sky Journeyman. You know what? I'll be honest. I wouldn't even bother demoing this because whenever it becomes available, I'm just going to buy it sight unseen. I don't need to know because Isle of Sky itself was so amazing. More Isle of Sky has got to be a good thing. Then after that, okay, um, because that was an expansion, you've got Dinosaur Island. This one's very interesting. Um, I had wanted to cover it when it was on Kickstarter, but there was uh, miscommunication, some mishaps. It just didn't work out. But I definitely do want to try this one out. You know, a worker placement game where you're trying to build your own Jurassic Park, the best Jurassic Park. That's a cool theme. I really like that. After that, Thunderstone Quest. This is one, after I saw Tom, ba- Tom Vassell got a way early copy of it. Vassell, I am jealous. You win again. Oh, um, anyway. 
I looked so amazing. I mean, we've always liked the original Thunderstone, but as soon as I saw his video of Thunderstone Quest, I got rid of all my original first edition Thunderstone to make room for Thunderstone Quest. So much cool stuff is added to this game. Amazing. I don't need to demo it. I just know I'm going to get it when it becomes available. And the same is true for the next one, Palaces of Mad King Ludwig. Uh, just Castle Mad King Ludwig was an excellent game. The only thing that was kind of a problem is the AP-ness and of the uh, I split you choose or esque gameplay, and also from a two player perspective, there there were some issues with some of the uh, with the way that the bonuses worked that I was a little bit unhappy about. All that kept it lower on my own personal rankings in suburbia, even though most people think I'm insane. But anyway, this new one I'm very excited about because everybody's building the same palace instead of building their own. That should be very very interesting. And hopefully will help address the problems I had with its predecessor. After that, you've got Grim Forest. This is probably going to be one of the most gorgeous games in all of Gen Con. And here's an interesting trivia bit. It has more thumbs than anything else. Not just amongst the stuff I'm choosing. It has the most thumbs of all 530 games on this list. Uh, and obviously, it's ranking very high on the must-have list as well. So, um, it's available to demo. You might want to check it out. This is one of those, everybody plays a card at the same time, we all reveal, and hopefully, I'm the only one doing my thing and everybody else is doing other stuff because the more people do the same thing, the less powerful it is. There's been a bunch of games like that. They work really well. But the production values of this game are Amaze balls through the roof. Now, I did not cover this when it was on Kickstarter because unfortunately it featured a very healthy dollop of take that screwage and stealing from each other. It's just like, okay, I don't want any of that. And it pretty much killed the game on the spot for me. But I've heard since then that enough people complained about that that the design has been retooled to um, make it optionally. You can still have all the take that screwage, but you can take that out and have a more live and let live version of the game. So suddenly, I'm interested again in the Grim Forest. Oh, I've already played it. Um, but if I hadn't, you better believe I would definitely try and demo Founders of Gloomhaven. Gloomhaven is probably my second or third favorite game of all time, depending on what day of the week it is. Um, absolutely love it. And you know what? Here's the thing. You've got to understand about Founders of Gloomhaven. Just because you love Gloomhaven doesn't mean you'll like Founders. You might hate Founders because it's such a radically different game. Don't get me wrong. It's a brilliant game, but it's so radically different. It's definitely a... If you're thinking about getting it solely because I want more Gloomhaven, you must demo it. You must confirm whether you enjoy this game or not. Now, of course, if you don't demo it, you can always watch my run-through because it's almost like you played it yourself, right? But still, definitely worth going and checking out the Founders of Gloomhaven. Um, wow, yeah, that was the number two on the must-haves of all these. But the number one... Oh, my gosh. Um, Founders of Gloomhaven had must-haves 160. The next jump up, 499. That's got to be the biggest jump to date, right? What is it? Um, well, you may not know this, but at Gen Con this year, you can demo Pandemic Legacy Season 2. And here's the thing. For me, I wouldn't demo this at all. In fact, I wouldn't even have put this on the list Except I felt like I kind of had to. Because every time I don't put this uh, Pandemic Legacy Season 2 on a list, I get a lot of flack. So let me explain myself. There is no way in heck I would... If, I, I would avert my eyes. I wouldn't even look at it. Here's the deal. I'm not looking at the box art. I know it's been available for a while. It got leaked, and now it's officially available. I don't want to know anything about this game. I already feel like I know too much. 
<clears throat> you know, when a movie's coming out that I'm super excited about, I don't watch the trailers. I don't want to have anything spoiled. I want to walk in a complete virgin in terms of, you know, what the experience has on offer. That is the case for Pandemic Legacy Season 2. I want to know nothing. When I eventually get my copy, I am literally not going to look at the back of the box. I'm going to crack it. I'm going to read the rules as fast as I can and play as fast as I can um, so I can experience it all without any spoilers whatsoever. That said, if you like spoilers, you can play it at Gen Con 2017, and apparently a lot of people will because it dwarfs the enthusiasm of everything else. And that's it, folks. Demoing. Done. Oh, can you tell? Can, 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 you, can you hear what my throat feels like? I am done, folks. That's it. Another year in the bag. Now I just got to bring all this stuff into Audacity and edit the heck out of it and um, post it and uh, then go back to being very jealous that I can't get hardly any of this stuff. And I will just have to wait and watch on the sidelines as all of you have a good old time in Indy. And I hope you have a great time. And thanks for listening, everybody. Have a very, very nice day. Don't worry. Next month, Jen will be back. I think next month might be 100% devoted to questions and answers because, by the way, you can send your questions to questions at raw.com. By, by the time Jen gets back, we'll probably have a ton of them. So, uh, look forward to that. Coming soon. Talk to you later. So long. Bye.